Greyhound to trap one. Over. part of our look at the fan audio series The Final Game, which is an epic seven-part story that pits the third Doctor and Roger Delgado's master against each other one final time. The cliffhanger to the second episode of The Final Game saw the Daleks arrive, so this podcast is all about these iconic monsters. I asked the cast and writer about the first time they encountered the Daleks on screen, their favourite Dalek stories, and what they think is the reason for the enduring appeal behind the Doctor's most famous foes. The first Dalek story that I ever saw was Death to the Daleks when I bought it on VHS, the first Doctor Who VHS I ever bought. I watched it over and over again when I was about 10 or 11. So that remains one of my favorites. I don't know that if I've got an actual favorite Dalek story, it often depends on which one is the one I've most recently watched. I've most recently enjoyed The Daleks Master Plan and Evil of the Daleks, and we've recorded podcasts on those with Jason and Keith, respectively. I think they're both fantastic stories, and they show how well the Daleks can fit into different genres and types of story. And you can find these podcasts at trap1.podbean.com. In the second part of this podcast, you'll hear the writer of the final game, Chris McKeon, share his thoughts on both the Daleks and the writing of this episode. You are the doctor, you are the master, you are the enemies of the Daleks, you will be exterminated. Hello, Johnny Robinson here. My first Dalek story uh, was from the 2005 season one, uh, episode six. Uh, I believe it's just called Dalek, actually. Uh, This was the season that I was first exposed to the doctor and his adventures, Uh, And I remember my family, who were already fans of the show, getting very excited at the return of the Daleks. Hello, my name's Denise Sutton, and I play Elizabeth Shaw in the final game. I've been asked to talk about Daleks, and I can do that. Um, As to what is my first ever Dalek story, well, I'm quite old. So the first story that I have any memory of at all is... Planet of the Daleks, but they're just a few hazy memories of that one. Um, but the clearest memory for me was Genesis of the Daleks when it was first shown in 1975. I was six years old, and I think everybody in my class at primary school was watching it. I remember we were all sitting around a table, there were probably about eight or ten of us, and we were all watching Doctor Who. And we all knew it was excellent. We all knew that it was a really great piece of television that we were watching. The excitement, the doctors, the Daleks, Sarah Jane Smith going up the rocket. And I think in a way we also all knew that we were very lucky to have that kind of TV to watch. And um, that story is still actually my favourite to this day. I think it stands up incredibly well to every Dalek story before or since. Um, Obviously, watching it now, I get a lot more from it than I did at uh, the age of six. But I think the fear that I got from the first watch always stays with me. I always remember 
watching people getting exterminated and that black and white effect and how frightening that was. And um, But now, of course, I see the parallels with uh, Nazism. I see the incredible, complicated relationship between Davros and Nida, which I think is something, the sort of thing that you would see in television from that era, that relationships between people were complicated things and... It didn't have to be simplified or dumped down for children's television, and there it is, and it's a very fascinating relationship between two very different and complicated people. Um, and I do think Michael Wish's Davros was the best. No disrespect to anybody who came after him, it can't be an easy performance, but the absolute chill... I think the the mask and the shape of the face for the Dalek, for Davros in Genesis of the Daleks, so human but so ill and so wizened and so twisted, very powerful image and not one that you easily forget. And of course, the Doctor himself has to face some genuine moral dilemmas. Again, a very complicated for kids' TV, either now or then. It's not, should I tell on Jimmy for nicking the sweeties? It's a lot more complicated than that. It's, what has the right to live? Does any creature in the universe have the right to commit genocide, even if they know everything they know? It's very, very adult, and I think a lot of... uh, modern adult drama doesn't take on these issues in the same way. So, uh, the first question is, what was my first Dalek story? That's a really good question, and not one that I think I can answer very easily. Um, Because, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's about three. I have very early memories of watching... The Chase and Remembrance of the Daleks together, because they came in a very nice little VHS two-pack. And, of course, my dad loves Genesis of the Daleks, so we watched that a lot growing up. Um, Those three are probably... it, It was more than likely one of those three. My first Dalek story was most probably um, Death to the Daleks, I think. I grew up with the sort of the latter years of John Pertwee, and I can definitely remember the uh, the colour of the Daleks, which are silver and black in that story, and uh, the interesting uh, creatures around them, um, Belal and, and his lot. I don't really remember too much about it, apart from the, the Dalek that's on fire without his head. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, Daleks getting destroyed. I mean, I was quite young then, so I did read a lot of the Target books, so I can remember the artwork for the covers, the Death to the Daleks, Planet of the Daleks, and those kind of things. So, um, yeah, I think that was my first Dalek story um, of all. Halt! Do not move! Do not move! I think my favourite Dalek story has to be from season three, with uh, the David Tennant season three. Uh, The two-parter, Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks. It was the first time I was really aware of the scale of what the Daleks could achieve uh, and how far they would go to meet their plans. 
<laughs> Not to mention the true scarcity of the plot, which truly does um, magnify them as villains. And that would hands down have to be remembrance of the Daleks. As much as every other Dalek story is brilliant in its own way, the thing that elevates remembrance for me is how exciting it was to watch as a kid. Because it's, it's, it's one thing when you see Daleks storming a space station or a, a planet or whatever and, and gunning down humans or aliens or whatnot until they're finally defeated by the Doctor, but there's something completely different about Daleks versus Daleks. And humanity getting caught in the crossfire between, you know, the Seventh Doctor's manipulative plans to try and end them once and for all, and Davros's Daleks trying to take out the Renegade Daleks and so forth. And it's it's very much an an, an action movie that appeals to, uh, to 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 a kid. And it's a story that, as I've grown older, I've appreciated more and more. Because it has much deeper themes that run through that, beyond just spectacles and explosions and, and, and so forth. My favorite Dalek story, like a lot of people, I think it's going to have to be Genesis of the Daleks. Because, um, you know, it seems to have everything. It, it takes you back to the beginning to solve the mystery or to shed some more light on what happened to create the Daleks. And obviously the new dimension there is that they have a creator in Davros. Uh, it's quite claustrophobic and quite scary and it's played extremely seriously. Obviously there's the, uh, the World War II influence from the very beginning, the trenches and the gas masks, and then, you know, all the way up to the Khaleds, who are basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, Nazi scientists. I liked that, you know, Tom Baker was thrown into this story quite quickly, um, where he had a chance to mess around a bit on his first story, Robot. Um, this one, he had to play it dead straight because, you know, it's literally life and death on a huge scale. And I like that, you know, it's one of the stories that people remember his his very big um, dilemma. Do I have the right to destroy the Daleks? Um, so that was that was really interesting. Of course, Davros was a firm favorite from the beginning and has been ever since. Um, I will say that, um, you know, I do love Remembrance of the Daleks much later on because it added the extra dimension again of uh, the Imperials versus the Renegades. Um, but I did grow up with the Genesis Daleks, the, uh, the dark gray with the black globes, etc. And to me, those are, will always be the Daleks. Um, out of New Who... I do like a lot of what they've done with the Daleks. Not a massive fan of the Paradigm Daleks, although I like that they're taller and a little bit more imposing. But the designer doesn't really do it for me. But I, I will give an honorary mention to Christopher Eccleston's first Dalek story, Dalek, which was based um, on Jubilee, uh, the Big Finish adventure. Um, that was uh, a very pivotal story. It was the first Dalek story in New Who after nearly 20 years and it needed to address everything that people would say about the Dalek so it, they don't go upstairs and what's the suction cup for and how can this thing you know take on loads of people and guns and things and it was written in such a way that um, it addressed all of those issues that people found comedic even though we saw a Dalek going up the stairs uh, in remembrance that didn't seem to stick with a lot of people um, because then again it was the end era of old Doctor Who and uh, I guess the viewership was quite low so um, Dalek when it came back in 2005 was just 
the best bit of TV I'd seen for a long time. You know, it, you know, Matt Savage's um, redesign, all in bronze and looking a lot tougher and a lot more solid, like a tank. Didn't overdo it. Still, definitely a good Dalek look, and um, an updating, and it really sort of brought them back and. I think if that Dalek story had failed, Doctor Who would have had probably a, a bit of a shorter lifespan if people couldn't take a Dalek seriously, given the shape and the concept about Daleks. As to why the Daleks are so popular now, 55 years down the line, I think they are very much embedded in public consciousness. Everybody in the UK, at least, knows what a Dalek is. I live in Norway. Nobody knows what a Dalek is here, apart from a very few people. But uh, that's Norway's loss. Um, they were so popular when they first started. Children growing up, they could imitate them in the playground. The number of games that could be developed around them. All of the merchandise, of course. Um, and I think despite their issue with stairs, there is something frightening about them. Um, I think also one of the things why it is so popular is they were never overused. They weren't in every single season. When they came back, it was a big deal. And I know there were pecuniary reasons for that, but I think it worked to the betterment of the legend that the Daleks became that... Uh, you didn't have to see them every year. And when you did see them, although the story might be called something like the Dalek something or other or something or other of the Daleks, it was still a bit of a wow factor. I also think um, Remembrance of the Daleks, very powerful, very wonderful story that reinvented the Daleks in a way. And then again in the new series reinvented once again so much more powerful Daleks can now fly I think the image of the Daleks bursting out of the Genesis arc that's a really really powerful image and um, well apart from the new paradigm yes they still strike a little bit of terror um, one of my favourite new Who stories is Asylum of the Daleks and the psychological horror of what happens to Oswin Oswald. That really captured my imagination and made me think a lot. They're not my favourite recurring monster in Doctor Who, though. I think that honour has to go to the Cybermen. Although they are, in a way, variations on a theme, there's the mutated form that was once humanoid then goes into the Dalek casing and then of course there's the human form which becomes a Cyberman and of course they're much closer to us. You can see that happening. There was something on the news not so long ago, a completely paralysed man has now got a suit that he can control with his brain so that he can walk and that's a benevolent thing, that's a good thing, that's a positive thing. But how far will they go with that? Is it starting now? So, those are my thoughts on Daleks and monsters in Doctor Who. Thanks for listening.
you still had children growing up in the UK who were very familiar with the specter of fascism and Nazism because World War II had only been over for, what, 18 years or so? So they've grown up with all of the adult figures in their life telling them about the horrors of this kind of uh, person, this kind of belief, that evil empire that they'd had to band together to, to, to defeat. And so when you see a television show that uses those same principles but expands them into the realm of science fiction, you tend to, to, to look a little bit and you tend to think, you know, this is actually talking about something that I am slightly familiar with and puts it into a context in which I can better understand it. Of course, uh, I'd argue too that the design of the Dalek itself helped a lot with that because it's, a, it's, it, it's something that you can replicate fairly easily yourself. Um, you know, the, all the stories that you hear about kids running around playgrounds who, you know, extend one arm longer than the other and suddenly you've got a plunger and a ray gun and you can pretend to be a Dalek. It's, it, it's one, of those, one of those things that it appeals to the imagination and it appeals to real-world values that have been ingrained from a very young age. And it's something that is only getting more and more necessary to remember in modern era. Motion detected! Halt! I think the Daleks have retained their popularity over 50 years because it's a number of things. I mean, I'm an artist and a designer, so the look of a Dalek is pretty unique. It's kind of a one-man tank, but, you know, they decided to go with the the skirt look so you couldn't see any legs and arms, you know, appendages like a plunger and an exterminator in the eye. And, you know, there's nothing human about them. At the same time, they're not square boxes, like, for example, the quarks. Um, although the quarks look quite cute, etc. They haven't been followed on or they still look a bit dated, but Daleks are a mixture of, I don't know, kind of curves and straight lines, almost in an Art Deco kind of look. But they are, to look at, very, very unique. And I think because they mix curves and straight lines, and all hard surfaces as well, no, nothing soft there, they, um, they seem to be like moving sculpture. You know, you can't reason with them because they don't have eyes that you can look into. Also, the sound of the Daleks. Um, only in later years we've started hearing them uh, whirring and, you know, the sounds of servos as they move. But even before that, I mean, just the shouting and the grating. They don't have different moods. They're always shouting. They're always angry. They're always barking orders. That just reminds you that there's no talking round a Dalek. I guess with Davros, you can um, kind of speak to him as a scientist or whatever. But with a Dalek, they just shout and scream. They don't whisper. They very rarely have emotion. There are a couple of exceptions. But, you know, when you put the the impenetrable look of this solid, you know, man-sized tank coming towards you that's just screaming at you, it's such a, a strong and striking image. It's quite terrifying you know, to think about. I mean, if if you walked up to a man in a suit of armor and you couldn't see his face and all he did was scream at you, it would be quite off-putting. And that's what the Daleks sort of brings. It's almost a horrific kind of thing. And the other thing is because it's not human-shaped, for some reason people seem to understand that there is a creature inside the Dalek. It's not a machine. I'm not sure why that is. I mean, Cybermen are cyborgs as well. But Daleks don't feel like cyborgs. They're, they're actually, you know, these mutated creatures inside 
this travel machine, which is their battle armor. And um, there's something very wrong with their brains, you know, for their to be full of hate and uh, and you know to be uh, screaming at you all the time. It's a really uh, it's a really striking thing. And I think a lot of people uh, at my age or whatever age you are when you discover the Daleks, you know, that stays with you. That's it's such a striking thing. It's 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 almost as British an icon as like um, the, the Tower of London, London Bridge. You know, the uh, a red phone box or a black taxi. It's just very associated with British. Um, they have British accents. Daleks very rarely have American accents or anything like that. Um, although we did hear some Daleks uh, shouting in German once, which was twice as terrifying given their origins. But, you know, I, I don't think it can be beaten. Um, when you're redesigning classic Doctor Who monsters, as uh, my friend Matt Savage has had to do in 2005, you have to be very carefully walking this line of messing with um, a beloved, iconic shape and design. You can't push it too far. So he embellished certain aspects, like the covering and the uh, the construction to make it look tougher and harder, but kind of didn't go... F- too far to take it away from a Dalek and as you see when the Daleks were redesigned again by someone else for the Paradigm Daleks they went a little bit too far with it and made a number you know in in my estimation anyway made a number of small mistakes that uh, kind of took it away and detracted from the the classic look they still have the same kind of silhouette etc but there's still something not quite Dalek enough about it help I am under attack Emergency! Emergency! The reason for the Dalek success, I think, is twofold. The first being is that they don't look like a man in a suit. The second is that they appeal to the darker sides of human nature. And, of course, we all know that they are the uh, epitome of the Nazis. And I guess when you see them on screen, they appeal to that side of human nature that is intrinsically dark and should never be seen uh, or acted upon but can be safely executed on screen as seen in such in stories such as resurrection and revelation of the daleks so there we go there's my answers enjoy take care bye-bye and so my first dalek story um it's a little interesting in that i imagine that the first time I ever saw a Dalek, I've said that, stated that the first Doctor story I believe that I ever saw was the War Games, but as a very, very, very small child. So I would have seen a Dalek at the very end of the War Games, episode 10, when the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton's Doctor, is presenting his defense to the Time Lords of the evils in the cosmos that he must fight, that must be defeated, that he faces and defeats. And the last one, he says, worst of all are the Daleks. In think- unthinking um, killing machines, he said... Um, and I can imagine as a very tiny child who's just probably being fascinated by the appearance of the dome doll. Like you only see kind of its top upper half from a low angle, or I believe, but uh, from a high angle, I suppose it probably was. But its dome and its moving, you know, its, its eye stalk and the sound, woo, 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 I think that was the sound accompanied with it, um, with the footage. Um, that was new footage. Uh, for the time, someone got into a Dalek suit and, you know, uh, you know, you know um, a Dalek, um, what would be the term? It's a Dalek shell, I suppose. And um, 
and operated it for special shot footage for the war games. The Daleks themselves had not been seen for a couple of years at that time, since 1967's season four closer, uh, Evil of the Daleks, um, which I think it's very sad that I can't say it was my first Daleks story, because it hasn't been seen since, and the episodes are mostly lost, except for part two. But knowing that episode, I mentioned part two, and that I say the war, keep that in mind, part two, episode two of Evil of the Daleks, the first full Dalek story that I'm sure that I would that I saw was a Day of the Daleks, but um, right around that same time, there are close quote unquote seconds or thirds in the sense that around that time I also was seeing old, you know catching up on finding out that there was as I really began to devour all this information about Doctor Who very when I was a child I am noticing that there are missing episodes so I started trying to find all the old episodes that were maybe missing or the pieces that I could find online and such and so I probably around the same time of watching Day of the Daleks I definitely watched um, um, the, well I, def, I definitely watched The Chase um, and then the surviving episodes of the Dalek Master Plan um, the um, surviving episode of Evil of the Daleks um, eventually, some years later, I saw the, the, the Daleks, the very first story of the Daleks. Even now, to this day, I've never seen the Dalek invasion of Earth, believe it or not. Uh, it's, it's interesting in that I, uh, there's, I still have that, um, missing piece. And it's not missing, it's available to see, but I've never seen the Dalek invasion of Earth. I know about the story, but I've never seen it. Um... So I would say my earliest uh, Dalek stories, watching were Day of the Daleks, um, the Ch- well, probably watching it for myself would be Day of the Daleks, but also the Chase and the surviving episodes of the uh, '60s years, um, incomplete stories. I have since seen last early this year. Oh, actually, late last year I saw um, uh, the animated version of the Power of the Daleks. Um, as a side note, I find it very interesting that these animations. Um, Certainly, the ones that have been more recent, not things like Reign of Terror or the Ice Warriors or such, but things like Power of the Daleks, the Mako Terror. It looks like upcoming things like Faceless Ones or Fear from the Deep have been released in both black and white and color. That makes me wonder. That honestly makes me wonder if, when these episodes are recovered, if they ever recover things like you know Enemy of the World and Web of Fear and such, if there will ever be a push to colorize those episodes because uh, the the same colorization process that has been used to recolor some of the um, the black and white episodes, the technically missing episodes of the Pertwee years that exist, but the footage exists, but their original color um, copies don't. There has been a process where they found that in the broadcast signal, there are these, what they call the chroma dots, I believe they're called. So, you know, the, the signal that indicates, okay, this, this pixel is this color. Apparently, those same signals, those chroma dots, also exist in the black and white footage. And they're probably just not activated in certain ways, but they exist, which means by in theory, it might be a little more technical. The 60s black and white episodes could be colorized too. Uh, they would look probably a little weird <laughs> um, in terms of color, not what you would expect some of them. Like, be just in that, um, for example, the um, the um, to make a black and white image appear white, like the TARDIS console, um, a pale green was better to appear white than than actual white. So that original TARDIS console prop was pale green. But I mentioned all that just saying, it'd be interesting to th- see what color the 60s black and white Daleks are. I, the silver with blue blue uh, do- um, 
thoughts, of course, but um, it would be very interesting to reimagine those those stories. But I, the, but so the simple answer is my my first Dalek story is Day of the Daleks. Um, but I saw at roughly the same time many of the other Dalek stories. Well, after and before, so you could argue, I could argue that my first Dalek story is to a certain extent the classic series episodes uh, because I saw them all at a very quick amount of time um, because they. The episodes were being broadcast on PBS one after the other. And at the time that I was watching them, I was also seeking out and finding the, the earlier episodes uh, from the 60s. Incomplete and complete. It's too bad that not many of them are complete. But we have The Chase, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is not necessarily a... It's kind of a, a guilty pleasure fan favorite maybe for a lot of people, just in that it's, it's very ambitious. It has some production qualities that are a bit interesting, such as a, a Dalek just appearing, oh, like for an example, during the Dracula's Castle scene, when you have the Daleks that invade Dracula's Castle, whatever it is, um, I, th- I think it's ambigu- nice and ambiguous that it could just be something from Geneva, um, a 1995 computer exhi- exhibition, which, according to the Lawrence no- Miles novel Interference, was actually a failed um, demonstration by Microsoft. <laughs> interesting. Um, um, so Bill Gates gets a mention, which could work. But I also like that it could, when they say we have entered a realm of the human mind, which makes me think, to be very honest, if you go that route, might, might as well say that it's the land of fiction or maybe even the Matrix. There are indications the land of fiction could be connected to the Matrix, but some people thought it is. Um, that's interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, that's, that could be an interesting thing. Maybe the first Doctor slipped into Gallifrey somehow. Who knows? But, the example there is that the Daleks invade the castle, but long before the Daleks arrive and invade the castle, you can see as they're going through the what would be the Frankenstein's monster exhibit. You see a Dalek through in, in an alcove because the Dalek ends up in the alcove, but they just it just shows it just shows up on screen that the uh, prop was there and inside in in the frame the picture frame they just didn't take it off screen. Maybe they didn't have enough room. I don't know. But um, I just remember watching that even as a very young child, thinking, "What's the Dalek doing there? Why is anyone not noticing it?" And then I was able to realize, oh, I guess they just forgot that it was there. <laughs> but it has, there's a weird little charm to the chase. The second question, which is, um, what is my favorite Dalek story? You know, that's a very hard question. Um, a very difficult question. Huh. A lot of people have the answer, and including Terry, and, and this is not because it's a stock answer, not at all. It's a very sincere answer. It's maybe Genesis of the Daleks. I like Genesis of the Daleks very much. In fact, I think it's very, very good. It was originally, I'm not sure if it exactly was written for John Pertwee, but it was certainly commissioned by Barry Letts and, and kind of, to a certain extent, uh, shaped initially by um, Terrence Dix and Barry Letts. And the story there is that, um, you see this in, the, in a DVD documentary, filmed some years ago because Barry Letts was still alive, but, um, and sadly, therefore was Terrence Dix, who died just some three months ago. But um, Genesis of the Daleks, its origin is that um, after Terrence Dix, excuse me, uh, um, Terry Nation uh, submitted to Doctor Who, started to submit Dalek stories again in the 70s. Um, things like, not Day of the Daleks, he didn't write that story, but um, that was Lewis Marks, but Plan of the Daleks and Death to the Daleks. Barry, um, they enjoyed those stories, Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, and they requested another one from Terry Nation, and Terry Nation provided a story. We don't know all the details of that story, but it was uh, 
probably in just if you can be the most neutral way, just a standard Dalek story. And the way that Barry Letts and Terrence Dick stated, they said that they said to him, you know, probably kindly, I'm sure they said, Well, Terry, this is just like every Dalek story that you've given us. Can you give us something different? And Terry Nation said, Okay, I'll I'll do something different. And and they said he went away and he then he returned with Genesis of the Daleks. So some people maybe criticize and a little bit Terry Nation's maybe some of his the derivative nature of some of his later episodes and that it just seems to be always oh, just a run of the like some people think that Planet of the Daleks is a lot like the original the Daleks um, and such um, no one is necessarily above criticism but it certainly show is a testament to the creativity and pow- the power of the mind and the imagination of Terry Nation number one that he created the Daleks but number two that at least from the perspective of Barry Letts and Terry, um, Terrence Dix Genesis of the Daleks comes from Terry Nation it is thanks to Terry Nation, and maybe just given the motivation, Terry, you've given us something that is quote-unquote derivative. Um, it's your own work, of course, you're, you're mining your own material, but can you do something different? And Terry Nation rose to the challenge and gave us uh, that story, gave us Genesis of the Daleks. Now, I'm sure that Robert Holmes and Philip Hinchcliffe, certainly, they did. Uh, Terry Sticks and Barry Letts, how do I say? Yes, they, they, how they, we handed off the story to them, and how they developed it is different than how we would have done it. But, so they, they added to it, but they but the, the, it's clear that Terry Nation delivered the goods. Terry Nation um, conceived Genesis of the Daleks. It's not necessarily one of those things where, rightfully so, in some other cases, perhaps where maybe the, a person had an idea and they wrote it, but then Robert Holmes rewrote the whole thing. I'm sure that Robert Holmes cr- contributed a lot to Genesis of the Daleks and, and Phil, Philip Hinchcliffe, but from, from what the DVD commentary, at least again from the perspective of Letts and Dix, um, Genesis of the Daleks is Terry Nation's perhaps finest hour. Uh, it is his. It was his idea. That on on that scale, I would say that Genesis of the Daleks, from a respect standpoint, very much stands highly with rises highly with me. But in terms of like, enjoyability, well, you know, it's it's um, it's a little it's. It's not, it's not the easiest answer now, because again, we have 56 years, years of Daleks, and they still, this will tie a little bit with my third, an, third answer, so I won't go too deeply into this, but I will simply say that they still manage to scare us even now, after a ways past half a century, uh, just around the corner of 60 years. Um, with their most recent appearance, just almost a year ago, just shy of 11 months ago, first day of this year, at least broadcast. They still manage to do very good things. Um, since that will tie more to my third answer, I will just answer the se- second question, which is that if I have to... Ooh, man, you know what? I'm going to go... I will do what I did last time, which is when it came to the cliffhanger. It was my favorite cliffhanger. Um, because of the cliffhanger of part two of the panel game. So I will just take up my favorite... I think it's probably too hard to say a favorite Dalek story. Just because I don't have a favorite doctor, it's hard to say I have a favorite Dalek story. So I'll take my favorite story from each doctor. Um, for William Hartnell, it's Dalek Master Plan. Granted, only a quarter of that 12-part story exists. Um, although, it's, if you consider his 13 parts with his prologue as Mission the Unknown, just a few months, a couple months ago, we had, um, last month, we had the, re, the remounting of the Mission of the Unknown. So you could argue that four episodes exist um, of... Dalek Master Plan, and um, what a what a triumph that was! A lot of shout out to all involved 
including to Marco Simoin, Simoini, I think is his name, who played um, um, uh, the Mark Corey character as originally um, um, embodied with um, by Edward D'Souza, who incidentally gave the uh, introduction to the remounted episode. Um, I'm not friends. I'm not friends with this actor at all. Not, not at all. But immediately after, I should say that immediately after the release of that episode, I found Marco Simonini on online uh, through Facebook, and uh, sent him a message and congratulated him for his performance for the for everyone's work. And he responded and said and said thank you. He was very kind and very gracious. And um, so I was able to thank the the actor, not personally, but as close as I can be from being six thousand miles away. And so that was a nice little and a treat that he responded. He was very kind and gracious. So thank you, Marco. Well done. Um, so I was so again for the Hartnell years, definitely the mission. The uh, excuse me, um, mission the unknown. I'll include mission the unknown. Dalek master plan. Uh, just for its for its its successful epic scale, and its um, and the, some of the, some of the firsts or seconds that happen in that story. You have not only the Daleks, but you have the return of the monk. The first time you have a retur- recurring antagonist, and uh, and a, such a wonderful, marvelous performance, returning performance by Peter Butterworth that I, in the future, everything has been recorded. They haven't been edited, but I have cre- created a third Butterworth monk story with William Hartnell's Doctor, The Misshapen Planet. Um, I don't say this to to promote my own story, but just simply to say that there was such a lasting legacy to that story that even now, 53 in fact, at this point, nearly 54 years later, because that, those episodes were airing in late 65 and early 66, and this is late 15, um, 19. So, yeah, 50, no, by now, 54 years ago. On the whole average, 54 years ago. There is a lot of um, excellent material. And and I can't speak too much to it because I have not seen much of the, ep- the episodes because they sadly don't exist. But just the epic scale of traveling from Kemble to, let me think, I think it's from Kemble to Desperus to... Um, Oh, I'm probably missing a planet in the middle episode. Oh, well, um, um, oh, um, what's the planet's name? Mara? Myra? So the, Mara, I think, when you get to parts five and six. And then to Earth, of course, in the Feast of Stephen, the, the very first Christmas special episode, I think. Yeah, yeah, of Doctor Who, which sadly is probably the one Doctor Who episode that is almost certainly no longer in existence because of its, um, its nature as an episode that was uh, a Christmas special, and so most of the episodes that were shipped overseas were sent to non-Christian um, nations, and so, or there was just a simply a thought of that, and there was a thought that oh, it's not marketable, and it's a distraction from the rest of the story. Let's just market it as a sell it as an eleven-part story, and that original master um, tape was wiped. So it's very, it's it's almost a certainty that Feast of Stephen no longer exists. Exists. There are ninety-seven missing episodes of Doctor Who. But they are in two categories. 96 episodes that are missing, and then one, the Web of Fear, episode three, that we know exists. It's simply missing in action. Someone has taken it. But it's thought to be, I think, existing right now in Australia. So I think, I'm highly confident, at least I hope. Let's put it this way. Web of Fear, part three, episode three, exists. Someone has it, and I I am confident that some people like Philip Morris will eventually um, recover it, because they probably know where it is and who has it. Um... And my feeling is a lot of the episodes that are missing exist somewhere. They'll just have to negotiate to get the material back to the BBC. They probably those will go for millions of dollars, I'm sure, or whatever currency, millions of a particular currency, 
in which they, in the world, the, the home country in which they reside. But the piece of Stephen Sadley is almost certainly no um, no longer exi uh, existing. But uh, there's that, and then the planet oh, Tigus, and then ancient Egypt, and then back to Kemble. So several planets, several monstrous races. Uh, the creatures from the from the outlying galaxies are shown in Mission the Unknown in the earliest episodes of Master Plan. Like I said, the monk, and of course, the first appearance of Nicholas Courtney in Doctor Who as um, space security um, special space security agent to Brett Byam, uh, brother to Gene Marsh, this is his character of uh, Sarah Kingdom, who, uh, funny enough, they appeared together. I think they also, the two actors, appeared on the stage together. So they worked on stage together, Courtney and Marsh. Then they appear together in Dalek Master Plan. And then the next time that they appear is in Battlefield together, as, of course, the Brigadier and Morgane. And it's a very funny thing when Morgane says to the Brigadier, excuse me, the next time that we meet, I will kill you. And, of course, you know, 2,000 or so years later, the the same actors, you know, quote-unquote, if you think, in terms of Doctor Who history, the same actress play characters that 2,000 years later, and the female, Jean Marsh, kills the male, Nicholas Corny. <laughs> it's funny that way. So the mas Dalek Master Plan, like I said, and of course the monk, like I said, so wonderful, wonderful story. For Patrick Troughton, uh, he only has two, um, and I've seen both. I will say that, well, I think what will edge it is evil, the Daleks, just because part of it is that, again, there's that mystery. Most of it doesn't exist. In both stories... Evil the Daleks exists more than Power of the Daleks in that it's, um, both have six episodes missing, but Evil the Daleks was a seven-part story that has one episode that exists, and Power of the Daleks is a six-part story that has no episodes that exist. But Power of the Daleks has been, uh, very carefully, I think, uh, reanimated. So, Evil the Daleks, at the moment, in terms of moving footage, um, only has that one episode, part two, episode two, which has the first appearance of, uh, um, Deborah Watling, as Victoria Waterfield, so we get to see her. Uh, gosh, goodness, I just think to myself that she was so young. The character is supposed to be only 14 or 15, um, and the actress was only 19. It's amazing. She was she was practically a child herself. Um, and she plays a very wonderful character. Very tragic figure. And um, wonderful um, side characters that I wish we could see. Uh, Sonny Caldina showed up, played... Um, Kim Bell, I think, is his name. Um, I could be wrong about that, his, his name, but I think so. Well, I'll have to look it up. Actually, what, what, I'm going to look it up. What was... What was Sonny Caldinez, I'm checking my phone. Sonny Caldinez, of course, um, had appeared... Um, that was, I believe, his first appearance in Doctor Who. He would go on to appear several more times usually, um, as an ice warrior throughout the... Um, Later, slightly later in the Patrick Troughton years, in, in um, the Ice Warriors and the Seas of Death, and then the John Pertwee in um, um, The Curse and Monster of Paladon. Um, and Caldinez, of course, was is a, is a Trinidadian actor. So he and he also showed up in James Bond's story, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. He's still alive now. He's eighty-seven. Uh, quite tall. He's like six and a half feet tall. So that was usually an large mass. And very. And I've seen him in interviews. Uh, he's actually very. He seems like a very, very kind, pleasant man. Um. Oh goodness, what was he? What was his character? His name. I'm looking it up. I want to get it right. Oh, if I can just find it. Evil the Daleks. Yeah. 
Oh, Sam Kaldin is also one of the thugs, Mongolian thugs in the in um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he had some nice stu- scenes with Harrison Ford. Let's see here. Uh, Kem, I said Kemel. It's Kemel. Kemel. Very close. And he plays a kind of a. I don't know if he'd be an Arabic or Indian or something. Uh, a strong man who's silent, but he becomes friends with Jamie. And he loses his life on, uh, he dies on Scaro. So again, a very uh, heroic and noble figure. Uh, but again, all this footage doesn't exist. But he's there, and a large, big, tall guy standing next to Fraser Hines. I've met Fraser Hines. He's really not a great guy, but he's a fairly short person. And so, um, and I'm not 6'6". Six, six. So, uh, you can just imagine. Uh, but, uh, so you have a lot of wonderful things to give the Daleks, and of course the Emperor Dalek, and a return to Skaro, the idea of the human factor. I believe probably one of the earliest times in Doctor Who that you have a reference to the idea that humans are beings that travel in time are changed somehow. There's a reference when the Doctor asks the Daleks, why are you interested in Jamie? Why do you want to use him to test your, in your experience? And they say, he, and their answer is, he has traveled in time. And so... Very uh, has a lot of resonance with other characters and concepts um, throughout the rest of Doctor Who and even before retroactively history. So it's very interesting. And of course, um, you know the connection back to Faceless Ones and and such interesting note that um, that um, on the same day in Doctor Who history, twentieth I believe July nineteen sixty six, you have these stories happening: the War Machines, the Faceless Ones. And Evil of the Daleks, or at least in terms of the events of, on that day. What's very interesting about that is in the War Machines, when the Doctor sees the uh, postal tower, the post office tower, he starts shaking, he says, I have, he shows Dodo his hand and says, I have this feeling, this feeling I, I felt it before when, when the Daleks were near. And of course, it's revealed that Dodo never met the Daleks. He says, oh, yes, you never, she says, Daleks, who are they? He says, oh, yes, says the Doctor, you never met them, and I pray that you never, never will. Well, it's very interesting. I'm not sure if the sto- that was, this was the intention that the Doctor's feeling in a certain way as if the Daleks are near, and on that same day in history, the Daleks are near. They are nearby. On the other side of a regeneration, but they are nearby. Um, for the third Doctor, um, ooh, again, it's, you don't have too many. Hartnell had four, at least of individual more, you could argue five, maybe six if you count the one Dalek that shows up in the Dalek that show up in the Space Museum, but um, Troughton has two. Are you three if you count their briefs in the War Games, which I don't really. Um, Pertwee has three. Um, he has Day of the Daleks, Plan of the Daleks, and Death to the Daleks. Not Death of the Daleks, just Death to the Daleks. More like an attack. Oh, it's a tough one. Um, um, people often ridicule and I think unfairly, the uh, Dalek voices, uh, original Dalek voices at Day of the Daleks. Of course, there's the special edition now, which has since added a little bit of footage, some more Daleks, and um, uh, changed the Dalek voices to those voiced by Nicholas Briggs. In my opinion, if you've done that, you might want to do that with all the other Dalek stories to give them kind of a consistent sound. Uh, but um, uh, I really like the Day of the Daleks because of its time-traveling nature, but if I have a favorite story... You know, um, it I actually might be Day of the Daleks. Um, it's tough because Plot of the Daleks is part of a, again like kind of like a little bit like 
is the second half of another quote unquote twelve originally twelve parts and eventually split into two halves of a story, two six part halves, Frontier Space Pull and the Daleks. It's a little tough with the Pertwee, because each one has something I really like. Day of the Daleks has all the time travel. It's got the Brigadier and Unit, of course, and, and a real good use of a paradox. Plan the Daleks has, um, well, it doesn't have the Master, but it has the Master and the Daleks, briefly mean the only time that happens on screen in the original series. Um, one of the few times it's happened since, really. Um, Death to the Daleks has the Great City and... Um, and Daleks in a, and the Doctor somewhat, not exactly allied, but definitely at times working a little bit together because of they're, they're both imperiled. The Doctor's TARDIS has been uh, disabled, and the Daleks' weaponry has been disabled. Um, so it's... it's, um, it's a, and, and of course, I like the design, the, ex, uh, the, the Exelon race, and such. It's very hard to choose one there. But if I'm... Um, oh... I like the invisibility stuff, the Spiridons, uh, of course, Planet of the Daleks. But if I'm going to choose one, I'll, I'll edge out and say Day of the Daleks, because um, I always love a story with the Brigadier. <laughs> but I like the, 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 the elements of the paradox. Very intricate and very well done elements of, and the political intrigue. And the, there's a, a little bit of the Bond style of things, and, and the high-level alerts, like, oh my gosh, if we don't, with these World Peace Conferences, if we're not careful, the world will be destroyed and such. And that's not... I like this not resolved in a neat bow at the end in the sense of, oh, well, the world will be safe. No, it's more like, we've got to get back to that peace conference. Um, Sir, Sir Reginald, because uh, we know what will happen. We've seen it, haven't we, Joe? Says the Doctor. One and one interesting thing that's actually not resolved in Day of the Daleks, it is in the novelization, but um, the director apparently just didn't want to keep going. Didn't want to he knew that he had to resolve it. He just said, no, we're done. Um, he was... A little apparently not necessarily, I don't want I can't speak for him but apparently in terms of in terms of creativity it was rather um, cold I suppose in or at least done once once we, they were done filming he was done which was where what hap where did the um, other doctor and Joe Grant come from at the beginning of the story you see another doctor and Joe Grant show up when the doctor's working on the TARDIS console they come. From, they're wearing the same clothes, and I think they. I don't think they're alternate reality versions. I don't think that they're alternate doctors, really. In fact, I don't. I'm, I'm with R, um, RTD on that point. That's just if there are time lords, I don't think that they have, you have alternate reality time lords. You've got just one race of time lords and one doctor, therefore. Um. So it's it's simply the doctor at another point in his timeline. It's just, it's time it's just never revealed when. The novelization. I actually haven't read the Day of the Daleks novelization, so but it, they they come at some point during that story. Interesting. Um, for the fourth Doctor, well, in, yeah, it's, it's, he has only two stories, uh, just like Troughton, Genesis and Destiny. Of course, Genesis is interesting that he, from here onwards, you have a five-part, at least the original series, storyline with Davros and such. But it has to be Genesis the Daleks. Destiny is very good, too. But Genesis is... Um, I don't think it's, I don't want to say it's necessarily in a class by itself, because you have other really good Dalek stories, but it's really good. Uh, for its... Uh, the things that Terry said, it's, it's claustrophobic nature, it's the bunkers, the, um, the it's, excuse me, use of, re not necessarily revising, but revealing more uh, Dalek history. It's certainly revised in that the original story, the Daleks, you had the idea that there were Thals and Dolls um, in ancient Dalek history that fought against each other, but then you have the Thals and the Collets. I think that the um, Big Finish anthology series, I Davros, I think reveals that the Dolls were an earlier ancient race on the uh, from Skaro that were extinct by the time you get to Davros' time. 
might be interested to see how they factor into Dalek history. I think they, they do. I'm sure people have referenced it more than that, but as far as I know, they are an ancient race. So they've, they've used that. It makes me wonder if they'll ever use the idea of Yarvel. Yarveling, excuse me. There was a... Long before... I think back in the 60s, there was kind of an ancient history of the Daleks, and the Daleks created by a guy, scientist named Yarveling. I think Yarveling is... The name at least shows some ideas. I haven't heard that listen to those audios, but I'm pretty sure that that's the name Yarvelling is incorporated somehow, but it's not Davros. But um, it might be interesting to see if anyone would ever do a comparative history, some story like maybe reviving what was the timeline of the Daleks before the events of Genesis of the Daleks. Was there a Davros pre-Tom Baker era? Interesting. But, oh, and of course, Michael Wisher's Davros. He was... Uh, he was something else. He was something very special. Too bad he was never able to return, because he was still alive. He died in 1995, so he was, therefore he was still alive for the remainder of the original sort of destiny through remembrance. Um, would have been interesting to see uh, who he might, how he might have portrayed that character. But we have David Goodison, of course, we have Terry Malloy, who has definitely made the character his own, at least in the classic era. Um, it'll get easier for the next three Doctors, because they each only have one story with the Daleks. So, therefore, the fifth Doctor, it's Resurrection of the Daleks. Again, it's getting, again, it's kind of a, what I like about the, the Dalek stories there is that there is a definite running storyline. It has to do a lot with Davros. And, and so, um, um, there, you know, the fifth Doctor and Davros barely meet. They only meet for a moment, and in my mind, it's a very good story because you get to see the beginnings of this civil war between the Daleks. Not exactly civil war at this point, but Davos trying to re rest control the Daleks again by controlling the minds of certain uh, Daleks, and then of course creating this virus which will destroy the Daleks. So there's there are maybe echoes back to Genesis of the Daleks if when the Doctor pauses with the, to Davos if he had a, a virus that would destroy all life. Well, he creates a virus that would destroy the Daleks, but of course he's so much like them that he's affected too. Interestingly enough, as far as I remember in Revelations, it never reveals how he survived that, but maybe he had enough immunity. But, um, and of course, Resurrection of Daleks has the time corridor and these races and kind of Dalek, not exactly duplicates as from the chase, but definitely people like Stein, people controlled by the Daleks and such. We get to see the uh, flashback, kind of a leftover post-20th anniversary at the time, flashback of most doll doctors and companions. Not not Leela, apparently, but Leela was left out accidentally. But we get to see a lot of very interesting things uh, in that story. A lot of good sense of the past. And, of course, the first appearance of uh, Maurice Colbert as... Um, was it Colbert or Colburn? Colburn, I think. As, um, as uh, Lytton, Commander Lytton, who would return and die in Attack of the Cybermen. Um, there's a Bond-like feel to that character, too. Like, but kind of, a, not quite thuggish, but he was very imposing. He was a fairly tall, low, fit, athletically-looking man himself. I think he was well over six feet tall himself. And so when you see him, he's taller than Peter Davison or and Colin Baker, and he's pretty similar in height to even some of the Cybermen of that era. So, like, David Banks and Mark... Well, I don't think Mark Hardy wasn't in Attack of the Cybermen, but the men playing the Cybermen, certainly David Banks. But then, of course, put him next to Michael Kilgariff at 6'7 or so. Uh, he's, you know, that's a very imposing figure. But um, um, for the Sixth Doctor Cybermen story, of course, uh, Revelation of the Daleks, excuse me, Daleks story, Revelation of the Daleks. That's a very interesting old story. 
some people cite it as one of the best six Doctor stories. Some people also criticize it as saying it's a wonderful Doctor Who story that doesn't feature the Doctor. And you can argue that in that there's a lot of rich stuff happening, a lot of wonderful characters. Um, uh, oh, there's Orsini and, and, and such, and uh, Tassenbacher. Um, but it is true that the Doctor and Perry are there and they are doing things, but again, Sixth Doctor, like the Fifth Doctor, barely interacts with Davros, not until the very end of the story. Um, a lot of things are happening to other people. Um, the Doctor is one event, but it's interesting that this way the story is structured, it's a little bit like the story, the Sixth Doctor novel, Instruments of Darkness, in that the Sixth Doctor is there, but some people have criticized it, whether that's fair or not, that a lot of stuff is happening and the Doctor's not involved much. It's, it's, it's an interesting style of maybe kind of an, a prototype Doctor Light story. I'm not saying it's a Doctor Light story, but you know, it is interesting to see what happens when the Doctor's not around. But, but what I like, well, he's not at, quite as, he's a little moderately tangential, but it definitely follows what was happening in Resurrection of the Daleks. And for the first time, you get the cream colored Daleks and the next phase of the Dalek Civil War um, that are beginning to rise. It's very neat. Um, you know, renegade and imperial Daleks, with the additions to Dalek history and Davros' history that have been added by Big Finish, you definitely get the sense that what's renegade and what's imperial is uh, variable. Sometimes they're imperial, sometimes they're not. Um, incidentally, it would be very interesting at this point to try to reconcile the history of Davros in terms of events. You have these waves of history when it comes to Big Finish. You have your first wave where they were kind of covering events and kind of connecting things. And in the Dalek, Davros sense, the first wave, maybe the Gary Russell wave, you get things like the Juggernauts, which has the Sixth Doctor and Davros with the Daleks and the Mechanoids, kind of bridging the gap between, somewhat between revelation of the Daleks and remembrance of the Daleks. But then you have a second wave, or maybe a third wave, but you have a, kind of one wave, probably a second wave, which would be in the earlier Nick Briggs era, where you have, some years ago now, where you have the Curse of Davros, which is, well, you know, features Davros as an emperor, <laughs> the emperor of the Daleks, and has him at the end not leading into Juggernauts. And the thing about Juggernauts is the way that was set up. Dialogue strongly implies it's the first time that the Six Doctors seen Davros since the events of Revelation of the Daleks. And then he references, because he references saying, last time I saw you were being taken away to stand trial by the Daleks, um, stand trial by your own people. Number one, that sounds like Trial of the Time one, but it's what was happening in Revelation of the Daleks. But then, of course, you have um, um, the Curse of Davros. Had Davros said that line, that, you could say it's out of order because the Doctor said that line. That's interesting. Not everything, you could argue not everything quite fits perfectly. It's all right. And, I'm, and again, I, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying it's interesting to see how it would... Because Davros tends to be in order. But it would be interesting to see how that all fits. And then, of course, you have Daleks Among Us, which is Seventh Doctor and Davros. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Again, dialogue from Terra Firma. Spoilers to anyone who hasn't heard it. Strongly implies that that's the first time the Doctor and Davros have met since. Even though there's a, a meaning that the Doctor's met, um, forgotten with the Eighth, doc eighth Doctor and Davros. But let's just say collectively, it's the first time they've met since Remembrance of the Daleks. And it talks about an event which Im strongly implies it was the end of Remembrance of the Daleks. The Doctor blowing up something, a scar or something. And Davros being flung into the vortex. But um, then you have Daleks Among Us which I talked to some of the people with Big Finish, and it is meant to predate Terra Firma, which is, in Terra Firma, the da Davros has a clone of himself, and then in Daleks Among Us, he's trying to 
experiment with cloning himself. So, um, I guess it is meant to be in order, which makes me think, therefore, before I move on to my favorite Seventh Doctor Dalek story, um, that there are probably other Doctor uh, Davros stories to tell. So I would say something that, if I were to talk about the gaps, something that leads away from another story I would say slotting between Res Resurrection of Daleks and Davros, and then a story between the Curse um, I would say a story between the Curse of Davros and the Juggernauts, and then a story between the Juggernauts and Remembers the Daleks. Yeah. Yeah, I would do that. And then anything after Terraformer. I really think we need another Eighth Doctor Dalek story. Davros story. But Seventh Doctor, again, on screen you only have one, and that's Rem Remembrance of the Daleks. Brilliant, brilliant, incredible story that uh, you could argue rescued Doctor Who to a certain extent because they had just come off from season 24, which has very good stories in, within it. I know you like Dragonfire, Delta the Batman. I really like Paradise Towers. It's a grotesque, kind of scary, dark element to Paradise Towers. I even like Time in the Ronnie, but at the time, season 24 was not very well received. So they redirected the series and we got something like, and revamped the Seventh Doctor style, and we got Remembrance of the Daleks. Some consider that to be the best Dalek story since Genesis of the Daleks. Um, I think the ones in between were very good. In fact, very, very good. But, um, where was the Daleks? Oh, Return of the Doctors, the beginning of Doctor Who's the 25th. The 25th anniversary story is officially Silver Nemesis, but most people by default would say that Remembrance of the Daleks is the true, quote-unquote, 25th anniversary story. It has a lot of callbacks to the first Doctor's era explaining, revealing what he was doing on Earth, or at least what was he hiding. He had the hand of Omega. Makes you wonder what else he had, because there was presuming also Validium, maybe. It's not explicitly stated when that left with the Doctor, if it ever did, but from Silver Nemesis, but um, even so. Wonderful story. Uh, the hand of Omega, references to Omega. Omega does not make a third appearance in the series, but he's definitely a presence in that story. Um, oh, the destruction of Scarrow. Davros as the Emperor Dalek. So again, Davros, again, the Seventh Doctor and Davros barely meet. Um, the Really, the, the only Doctor who had a lot of good time with Davros on screen is the Fourth Doctor. Because again, Davison barely meets Davros. Colin Baker barely meets Davros. Sylvester McCoy barely meets Davros. In fact, the way that they're set up, they probably didn't even share any scenes. Uh, meaning, they do, but in terms of production, actual on-set production, um, Sylvester McCoy and Terry Malloy probably never even met. They may have, but it's very possible they didn't because it's filmed on two different stages. For all I know, they were filmed across, you know, in the same room at the time. I don't know, but it's just a little bit different. When you know about the production, a little bit of how things are made, different scenes and such. So it's, it's interesting, but it's still very powerful. Unlimited rice pudding and such. Um... Very, and that's, you could argue, is where the Seventh Doctor became himself. That was really well done. Wonderful story. And seeing Davros just insane is, is beautiful. Um, a, ra a raving insanity. Um, Eighth Doctor, we'll have to go to the audios. I would say, again, it's, my favorite is probably going to be Terra Firma. Very dark, scary story. Wonderful performances by McGann and Malloy. Again, Malloy's more in the, in the vein of Remembrance of the Daleks. He's raving a lot, and he's going insane. He goes insane. In the end, he becomes, quote-unquote, the Emperor Dalek. Then he considers himself to, considers himself to be um, a Dalek, fully. Clearly, that has to go somewhere, because Davros is um, 
Davros is, has regained his identity by the time you get to the Tenant era. And again, the Capaldi era. Um, very cool stuff. Wonderful stuff. Uh, and of course, nice development for Karis, the companions of the time played by Conrad Westmas, who I believe is a guest at times of this podcast, so I hope, hope to quote-unquote meet him one day and talk with him. Um, and Charlie is played by Indy Fisher, and again, wonderful Tudor Force performance by Paul McGann. Oh, goodness. And of course, the revelation that he had against his companions, Samson and Gemma, so I would love to hear more about that from them. Um, I personally like to think that that story, if you were to see it made visually, is the first time, maybe. Because began at a previous story with the Daleks, Time of the Daleks. I like to think that Terraform is the first time that we see the Daleks uh, as designed in the new series. But not exactly. I think that maybe they are still cream-colored Daleks, but with some bronze and in the style of the new series. So so that's just that's my personal opinion. They pre- That story came out in August of 2005. Uh, it, therefore, it post-dated the, the release of the next story that I'm going to mention, which is Dalek. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that um, the Daleks of Terraform and the Eighth Doctor's Era look like the Bronze Daleks of the Ninth Doctor's Era and onwards. For the Ninth Doctor, well, he, uh, Dalek, definitely. Hard, because both stories are really good. Parting the Ways, Bad Wolf, amazing episodes. But I like Dalek. In fact, I think it's an amazing story, and what Terry said is true, and his answers that had that story failed would not been very good in reintroducing the Dalek and and the Daleks and their nature and their design. Different and yet it looks exactly like a Dalek. Uh, the Doctor may not have been as successful as, probably a very good chance might not have been successful, especially when if the rumors and the back history is probably accurate, it looks like for a little while it looked like Doctor Who was going to return without the Daleks. Uh, I don't know all the details, but it seems like at one point it looked I think at one point there was a release saying the Dal- Daleks were I think the BBC were saying the Daleks were not going to return, but uh, they did, and we got them. I've spoken with the author of that story, Rob Sherman, and he told me a few interesting, neat things about the back history of that episode, and that uh, the Daleks, um, he, yeah, he, there was an oblique reference to Davros, which is nice, that he's the king of his own little world. Um, apparently... Rob Robert Sherman would have made the story a little more gruesome, a little more um, scary, something like the, the mutant attacking Rose, or it's casing cracked, you could see the mutant inside at one point. Um, and RTD vetoed that, saying it's too much! And it was just too early in, in the production years, uh, a little too bold in its presentation for a first-year returning series. So, very interesting moment. But that was an excellent story. Again, a excellent performance. Sometimes these Daleks bring out the best performances in the lead actors they did with Sylvester McCoy, with Paul McGann in the audio, in um, for Tom Baker, and definitely for Christopher Eccleston. Oh my goodness. Oh, that was incredible. Incredible episode. And I, I live in Utah, so, um, so... I live in Utah. I'm from East Los Angeles, California, a city called Whittier, but I live in a city called Provo, Utah now, so it's neat that uh, I live in Dalek country. <laughs> uh, who... And is what's very interesting is when this the episode is there, it said, "Where's what's the nearest town? Salt Lake City." So I think to myself, "Well, where would that story be? Where, where, where?" It makes me wonder where Van Staten's bunker was. I'm trying to do geography because, you know, if you if the nearest town is Salt Lake City, but you're trying to make it remote, it's a little hard. With, uh, just being honest, as a side little fact, out here in Utah, um. Uh, 
it's not impossible, but it's a little hard to, to make, to have a bunker. It's not impossible. What I'm saying, though, is there are, there are desert places, certainly, and flat desert places. But if you want to bunker somewhere, and the, and the nearest town is Salt Lake City, well, that kind of makes me think that the, um, the bunker, and it's set in the year 2012, seven years ago, the bunker would probably have to be in the, in the mountains somewhere, just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are these uh, mountains here. They, they would probably the Wasatch Front mountains or something like that. They probably have to be in the mountains somewhere, um, um, because Utah geography is such you can't go too far east or west before you hit mountains. And again, if the nearest town is now, there are places in Utah that they were set in southern Utah or maybe. Western Utah, you know, somewhere remote, or northern Utah, somewhere. I, I, I get that, but he specifically says the nearest town is Salt Lake City. That makes me think, okay, if it's Salt Lake City, there are a lot of other cities around here, and the mountains are close. So if, there's a, if there's a bunker some miles underground or a long way underground, it's got to be in the mountains somewhere. Not, ne- not necessarily. Well, that's all I'm saying is that it's a little different for me now, retrospective, in that I wasn't living in Utah at the time when the episode aired, but now that I do, I think to myself, well, wonder where that bunker really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but moving into, ahead to the 10th Doctor's Era, David Tennant's Era. Oh, goodness. Um, you know, for spectacle, you say my favorite story probably the you could say might be the Series 4 under the, uh, the Journey's End stuff, but for, but because that's, and that has Davros and all these characters, so that might edge it, but just in terms of, but being very honest, even though it received a lot of negative press at the time, I think my favorite Dalek story there might just be because it's just a purely Dalek story. There's no Davros. I love Dalek stories with Davros, but but also advancing the storyline off of what had come. So advancing and, and exploring the nature of the Daleks is the um, evolution of the Daleks. Um, Daleks in Manhattan, evolution of the Daleks, two-parter. Um, the, with the human Dalek, Dalek set becoming a human. And that real sense of... there's all kind of, feels like a divide there. Because... For a little while, there are only four Daleks that still exist. The, the Cult of Scarrow. They're the only four Daleks still in existence. And three are destroyed. So for a short time, there's only one Dalek, the Dalek Khan. And what I like is that sense of, with a little bit of free will added to their, 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 ability, their, their um, consciousness, with a little bit of agency, maybe a Dalek can choose good. Or at least can think differently. And choose a different path. Dalek Sex says, "There's that wonderful moment with the Cult of Scar where the Dalek says, Sex tells the other Daleks, look at us.' Essentially, look at what we have become. We are supposed to be the masters of of the cosmos, and yet there are only four of us left. Our choices. Now, at this time, he's not necessarily saying let's be good guys, but he's saying our choices and how we conducted ourselves, how we waged our campaign, has led to nothing but ruin and destruction. And there's there are only four of us left." And look at us now. We're not growing our empire. We're not recreating new Daleks. We can't. We don't have materials left. We all have ourselves. And our power is, is low. Are we going to keep doing what we've been doing? If we do, we'll all, we will, our race will be extinct. We need to think differently. And then it takes the bold choice of, quote-unquote, um, impurifying itself to become a human Dalek. I thought it was fascinating. I don't. I really don't quite know why people don't necessarily like that story. I'm, I'm perhaps a little bit against the quote-unquote popular opinion, but I really, really, really found that story fascinating. Of course, you have some notable actors too. Um, um, eventually, Andrew Garfield. Uh, eventually, Spider-Man, and who has shown up in the Martin Scorsese film Silence lately. He 
he was there in not uh, that's not necessarily his acting debut but uh, he was there um and so that's a very good little episode he's playing an american he's american born but you know raised in england uh <laughs> and therefore there's an interesting moment was set in manhattan and he he meant, he talks about a a vehicle he calls a lorry well we don't call our tr- trucks lorries here we call them trucks <laughs> we don't call those vehicles lorries they're trucks I, when i'm writing the final game i had to be careful and think okay what is this a truck or a lorry i'm just called a lorry but yeah but he he calls it a lorry so a british person wrote that episode Hel- helen helen rayner i think is her name jacqueline rayner excuse me i think is that her name i'll have to check again but I thought she did a wonderful job. And apparently she was very hurt and sad that people were very negative to her episode. And uh, that's too bad, because I, if you ever hear this, um, and I'm going to get your name right, because there's so many people around that have written for Doctor Who. I think your name is Jacqueline or Helen. I think it is Helen Rayner. Um, just a moment here. Evolution. I'm checking my num- my phone again. Evolution of the Daleks. Written by Helen Rayner. Well, you did a wonderful job. Helen, you did a wonderful job. Well done. One of my favorite Do- Doctor Who Dalek stories. Um, of the new series and in general. For the 11th Doctor, you know, it's interesting at this point. Um, Terry mentioned, of course, the design- redesigns of the Daleks and what were successful and what weren't. And so you get the the very successful RTD era Daleks, uh, designed by his friend Matthew Stevens, who did a wonderful job. So well done. Wonderful redesign and just really just repurposing, re, re, excuse me, re, reimagining the character without, with imagination, but not new imagination, just taking, and that's not a fault, that a slight, that is, you're just taking what ex- worked and then re, and building upon it. Well, the, I don't want to, the Dalek design of, of the Moffat era, even Moffat has said that it was a misfire. It was, it takes, it's saying something, I give him a lot of respect for admitting, or at least saying, you know, I mean, I mean, a mistake. I was. Te- I think he said he was just so distracted with other things in that first year that he took his eye off the ball, as he said, and approved a design that he knows in retrospect was flawed. Well, I like the new paradigm design, but the problem is going forward with the eleventh and twelfth Doctors, it's a little harder because um, there aren't too much. There isn't too much done with the Daleks. You have this big beginning with victory of the Daleks. You have the new paradigm stuff and such, and then. That's the thing. They show up a couple, maybe three Daleks show up in Big Bang, one again in, um, what's it called? Um, the Pandora opens and the stone Dalek, so it looks very nice in the Big Bang. A broken up Dalek shows up in Wedding of River Song very briefly. You still see the new paradigm in Asylum, Asylum of the Daleks. Oh, so it's a little hard. And of course, you have a lot of Daleks that show up in Day of the, Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor, but. Really, when you think about it, in terms of a good Dalek story, Matt Smith has really two. Well, not a good Dalek story, but a dedicated Dalek story without other monsters showing up. Because Pandora opens the Big Bang. You barely see the Daleks, and they're just a, a, kind of almost lost in the crowd. I would say if, if there's any singular singular monster story there, it's a Cyberman. Because they're showing a lot more. Um, which is, inter- interesting, interestingly enough seems to be the monster choice for the Moffat era after what happened with maybe, I don't know if there's a correlation, but maybe after the what happened with the New Paradigm Daleks and their almost reject rejected design, the Cybermen become the main monster used by um, Moffat in Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi's era. Um, but really, the, Matt Smith has two Dalek stories, dedicated Dalek stories, Victory of the Daleks and Asylum of the Daleks. 
Um, both featuring... Well, the first one only features Amy, but the other one features Amy and Rory. I don't... Uh, and then, of course, also a version of Clara. It was a nice, kept surprise. Um, of course, Jenna, Jenna's playing another... She's playing Oswin, another version of Clara. Kind of a... Very different version of the character. Very different from the versions that the main Clara that Jenna played and then the kind of Victorian Clara. She's Oswin's more of a... Uh, so very awkward, maybe even slightly uh, not psychotic, but granted, she, sociopathic. I don't know, but she's very different in how she's portrayed and how she's kind of off and all that stuff. Uh, shows Jenna's range. I thought she was a wonderful f debut performance. But it's hard to say which one I prefer. I mean, because Ian McNeese, you have Ian McNeese and Victory of the Daleks and Matt Smith's wonderful performance again. And again, Tennant's performance when he's screaming at the Daleks. I'll mention that in um, in uh, Evolution of the Daleks. His master saying, saying, kill me, just kill me, go ahead. Um, Matt Smith with his, his raging against the Daleks, smashing, trying to smash it with a, with, a, with a wrench was very good. was masterful. I don't know, though. You know, again, uh, I think I'll go for a nostalgic mood, and and also because to avoid you know anything with the, not because I don't like the new Paradigm Daleks, but again just to avoid the sense of oh dreams deferred. I think I will go with Asylum of the Daleks because I just like the sense of it was in the fiftieth anniversary time. You get to see all these older style Daleks. You get to see the new um, the um, special weapons Dalek called the Abomination in the uh, Remembrance of the Daleks novelization. So we get to see that. You get to see, again, old-style Daleks. You get to learn... It edges it for me, Asylum, because you get to learn more about Dalek culture and history and design. So you see a lot of cool things. Um, you get to see... Oh, I think it's called Kalan. You saw that in the... One neat thing was the City of the Daleks uh, video game, which was, I suppose, still is considered to be a canon episode. You had those video game episodes back in 2010, which were... I remember them specifically saying there aren't 13 episodes of Doctor Who this year, there are 17. We have these four games, City of the Daleks, Blood of the Cybermen, TARDIS, and um, uh, Shadow of the Vast Generata. Uh, very fun little games. And I like that we got to explore some things. So Kalan, which is the name, this main city on, on Skaro. So we got to see Skaro again, I think, in that story. Um, so, yeah, we got to see Skaro. We got to see the, kind of the debut of these Dalek agents that have, like, the Daleks' eye stalks in their bursting, protruding from their forehead. It's very cool. Um, oh, so wonderful little story. And, of course, the idea of what, where do Daleks go that have survived and are damaged, do they have, um, you know, the, they don't exactly have psych wards or uh, medical facilities, they've got just these abandoned asylum planets. Very cool, wonderful. And it was the last time, I think, to date that we see on screen clearly the new Paradigm Daleks. We saw a red one. Um, I think that they were on set for Day of the Doctor if the five-ish the five Doctor's reboot is was filmed during the time of, of the... Of the, of the um, making of the Day of the Doctor. I think so. So we probably saw... There probably were Daleks like that on screen, or at least filmed, but they weren't. didn't make it to screen. Twelfth Doctor. Favorite Dalek story. Again, you know, again, you don't have you, have... you have a couple, but... But again, it's just... He only has a couple dedicated Dalek stories. He has Into the Dalek, and then he has the... Um, 
the Magician's Apprentice and the Witch's Familiar, which features, of course, Missy and Davros and such. Um, and I, you know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Into the Dalek. Uh, you also the pilot. You know, it, it's interesting. Each um, not quite the very first episode, but each year for Capaldi, offset maybe by one in his first year, he kind of debuted with Daleks. But the only one that had a debut season with a dedicated Dalek story in the first episode, of course, was Series Nine. But I will go with Into the Dalek. I'm a little biased because it was written by co-written by Phil Ford, who I have known um, through the um, for meeting him and enjoying uh, becoming friendly with him at the, um, at the uh, Gallifrey One conventions. Very wonderful, and I will again say, wonderfully sweet, nice, generous man. Very good to to meet Phil Ford. Very kind man. Um, and he co-wrote that episode. I think that's his most recent Doctor episode to date. He did a wonderful job. And so the nature... There's a little bit of an invisible enemy in that being characters... You know, Doctor and his companion being shrunken to a tiny size and then going inside something. In the invisible enemy, it's the Doctor's own mind. And they're cloned, of course, or some form of clone. In this story, it's the actual people, but they're shrunken down miniature and then they're inside the Dalek. And the rusty Dalek, so that nicely circles back to Topaldi's final episode. So his second episode circles around to his final episode twice upon... Twice Upon a Time, which featured the return of Rusty. But it was a very neat little story, and then again, you have a little bit of a Dalek sect-type character, a little bit, just in that a Dalek that's damaged, and he goes, quote-unquote, good. Now, can a Dalek ever be good? He's not a good guy, necessarily, but he wants to kill the, and exterminate the Daleks, because he feels that they are a monstrous race. A very neat little uh, revision, a, a, a partial, and perhaps even near-total inversion of the Dalek urge to kill no, instead of killing all other races, he wants to kill his own race. And he says the thing, you are a good Dalek to the Doctor. Very interesting. Similar to what happened in, in, the, um, in the Christopher Eccleston episode Dalek, where the Dalek says to the Doctor, you would make a good Dalek. And then there's the return, you are a good Dalek. Interesting. Uh, and of course, Capaldi's performance is, again, wonderful. You know, it's very close to the beginning of his time. Uh, where he's telling Rusty, you know, think of these things and, and try to master yourself, but then Rusty just can't let go of its hate. It just turns to hate someone else. I would like to see the prophecy by Tom Baker's Doctor of the End of Genesis Daleks fulfilled where he says, I know that even, the Do- some go- that even from the Daleks must come some good. So we'll s- I hope to see how that, how that plays out one day. I would imagine that would be the final Dalek story. And then finally, um, Jodie Whittaker's Doctor Resolution. You know, I'm going to put that on hold a little bit because I'm... Pretty, I think it's not officially confirmed, but it's clear that we're going to have the Daleks in Series 12. Um, from some uh, on-scene photos taken by people that there are Daleks in that series. And being very honest, if all we had was resolution, uh, it would be favored only by default. And I don't mean to be mean, because I've spoken against about about my dissatisfaction with Series 11 and the 13th Doctor and Chris Chibnall's era so far. I can't speak of the whole because all we have is the, the beginning, but as of this time, all we have, at least I have, is Series 11. I was not very terribly impressed with that episode. The Dalek design was fine, but it, I just, it's not so much, it wasn't that, it was the, the internal logistics of the story. I cannot believe that 12th century or whatever century it was, um, uh, humans, primitive humans, with their weapons and technology, could destroy a Dalek. Especially one that they state in the series episode is an advanced version of a Dalek, an advanced scout or something. That can, after being dismembered for like a thousand years, 800 years or so, its 
after being revived by ultraviolet radiation, its dismembered and, and dis, you know dismembered body in three pieces can transmit and reconstitute, <laughs> and then possess a person, uh, and then once it rebuilds its casing from Sheffield Steel, it's able to destroy a modern-day army. The whole idea that... And we don't even know how those ancient humans destroyed the doll. They said, oh, it took a massive army, but they did have that. No, it, w- it, w- it wouldn't take a massive army. It, it, it wouldn't take a massive army. It would, take, it would be their deaths. I'm sorry, but there's, no, there's just no way. The idea that of primitive humans using knives and spears to carve a doll casing holds the same validity that a human being with an axe would be able to chop up the TARDIS for firewood. And a functioning TARDIS. I mean, seriously. It just wouldn't ha- it can't happen. There's, there's too much history, and we've seen too much strength of Dalek, you know, Dalek's um, armor, the bonded polycarbonate armor, Dalekanium. I just cannot believe it. It, w- it wouldn't happen. We don't even... And it w- I would have a little more respect for that if they w- could tell... If they had told us how the Dalek was destroyed. There, we see a brief picture of what looks like maybe, oh, they burnt it. But I think they say they burned it from the inside. Well, then how would that work? Again, all they have, what would they have? Fire? I mean, just fire? <laughs> I'm sorry, but no. We've seen do- advanced dogs flying through space. If it could survive the vacuum of space. And there's, it might have been a little more, um, um, I could have maybe respected that a little bit more if, if, if they adhered to the continuity that, at least in the Pertwee era, that Cold makes Daleks, you know, shut down. Had they used, had they discovered that, had it been, oh, well, it was having trouble with cold, so we threw it in a. We waited till the, we sacrificed ourselves as long as we could. Then we waited till the uh, uh, the frost years, and then trapped it in snow. That could, that could work if they freezed it. That I could be, maybe believe. But in, instead, of what we see in the foot pictures, oh, they burnt it. I don't buy it. I'm sorry, I do not buy it. The only way I can buy it is if the Doctor had been involved, but it, from all accounts, at least the way that the episode is shown, it doesn't. Se- the Doctor seems surprised that there was a Dalek there. She doesn't seem to have been involved, so therefore, I'm sorry, I just cannot buy the internal logistics of that episode at all. There has to be something else. Out of respect for the character and the nature of the Daleks, Terry Nation's creation, such Rami Cusack's design, and... 56 years of history of how powerful Daleks are. And this Dalek seems to be more powerful than what we've seen in the new series. Sorry. Absolutely sorry, but no. I cannot believe it. There are easier... I think there are better ways to envision a Dalek, some uh, mummified or an ancient Dalek, somehow being on Earth for, for centuries. That's not one of them. That's not one of them. That humans just destroyed a Dalek. No. No, not when in the same story modern weapons are modern-day humans and a modern-day army are, are completely destroyed. Sorry. But no. The only way that I could believe is that they actually tell us exactly what happened, not give us a hint. And I think, okay, fine, but we're never going to find out anymore because this story's over. It's a one-and-done type of story, probably. Um, again, I don't want to be too critical, but... I, Doctor Who Series 11 left me very cold, and if right now all that I have in comparison, if that era is Series 11. So, I'm sorry to say my, my enthusiasm of, of that era is at a nade, possibly at a nadir. I hope that, that the nadir doesn't shift even lower after Series 12. I hope things get better, but but ser- what, Series 11 was a low point for me. And so, therefore, I can say only by default, because it's the only one that exists, is Resolution for the 
favorite Dalek stories, but yeah, we shall see. Well, um, I've been talking now for a little over an hour, 68 minutes right now, so uh, I think that's probably that's enough for um, the final game, Confidential Part 3. Probably far too much, but even in any case, I've really enjoyed talking about the Daleks. Um, Oh, actually, what am I thinking? I haven't even asked the third question. <laughs> well, I'll answer briefly because we've talked for so long. But what do I think makes the Daleks so popular that have survived for the, these years? That it feels like I've been ta- I have been talking for fifty six years. What has made them popular for the last fifty six years? Well, I think what Terry Cooper said is very true. It is that sense that they are just purely evil. There's no talking around them. They are these monsters. They are inhuman. They have no human features. Yet somehow you know that there's something inside them. They are alive. They're not simply robots. They're too angry to be robots. They scream. They rant. They are orphaned children. They are of a cursed race. Um, What's the line from Shakespeare? How how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. You see that in the tragedy of Davros. His children are thankless towards him. And yet they keep coming and returning to him when they need him. And then they try to kill him. It's, it's, uh, you could argue, the ultimate dysfunctional family. It's horrible. Um, it's what happens when a race, um, you could argue, deserves to die, and yet will always fight to survive. Um, you see that with the Daleks, you see that with the Cybermen. To a certain extent, I suppose you see that with the Sontarans. They've been made more, in the Omofit era, of a figure of fun, which I think is probably a mistake. It's, and that's happened long enough. I know Steve Moffat said you can't do anything with scary with the Sontarans. I disagree. It's, it's not easy because of their na- how they're designed, it's pretty easy to ridicule them, but I think you can do things with them to make them scary. So I think the Sontarans are in need of a, re- a reboot. But uh, they were good for what was happening at the time, but I think enough time has passed, you could do something new with them. But uh, I think that the Daleks are a reflection of what happens when society, um, when the hearts of men wax cold, when the, when the hearts of men turn cold and, and brutal, and they they are meant to be kind of a, a parallel to Nazis, but you can see that in any society, a supremacist society or a supremacist group, um, or just a um, a group of any um, prideful group that have allowed their pride and their and their contempt for others to take control of their hearts and their minds, um, and just relentless carnage and destruction to destroy all others and and purify themselves, but of course we see what happens in any situation, in any situation like that, it will just come down to, you know, the pride of one, and so you see different factions fighting one another. It looks like, from what we've seen, some of the set stuff um, coming from um, the the upcoming Dalek episode in Series 12, it looks like we... Some people have inferred you see a bunch of Daleks and it looks like a, oh, a Dalek has been destroyed. Some of the way that the placement of the Daleks, maybe there was a thought that maybe the Daleks had destroyed the other Dalek. Maybe we have another civil war happening. Maybe we have something like the mutant phase in the audios where the um, uh, the, uh, the Daleks are, the, the, you know, mutating. The, mu- the call-in mutants are mutating again, so there's impurity. I suppose I should say, because that, really quickly, before I forget, honorable mentions for favorite Dalek stories. Um... Fifth Doctor, I see maybe um, Plague of the Daleks, very good. Sixth Doctor of the Apocalypse Element, oh, absolutely. Um, Juggernaut is good too. Seventh Doctor, um, you know, oh, the Genocide Machine, maybe, or there have been a few. Oh, no, 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 Enemy of the Daleks. Ooh, that's a good one. Enemy of the Daleks. Eighth Doctor, um, 
anything in the Dark Eyes or anything later in the time were very good stuff there. Um, Ninth Doctor, I guess if there's any <laughs> honorable mention, I don't know. Maybe parting the ways. Tenth Doctor, Journey's End. Eleventh Doctor, probably Victory of the Dogs. Twelfth Doctor, um, The Magician's Apprentice and such. And then I'm going to step backwards for the honorable mention for the Fourth Doctor, Destiny of the Daleks. Energy, energy, energy of the Daleks is very good. Uh, honorable mention, probably Death to the Daleks, something like that. Second Doctor, Power of the Daleks. First Doctor, the Daleks. Um, close seconds, essentially. What makes them popular? Just that they are the stuff of nightmares. And certain nightmares never change. The idea that something will always be angry and monstrous. And there's no compassion, no kindness, no no heart. And um, some, but something that must be destroyed. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not worth living if you if your if your life is such if you are burnt to a burnt past a crisp if all you are is just a burn, a burn uh, a burning fire within a hatred. That, if that's your life, then your life, then you have not lived or your you've lived too long and you it must end or you must find a way to change. My comments about the episode, um, and like the other. Like the first two installments of this series, I uh, will start from the beginning. Um, so when the episode begins, of course, we pick up with the cliffhanger. Well, at least leading into the cliffhanger, as as the episode has been released oh, by now, almost well, two months ago, it was well, about a month and a half ago, it was released on the 11th or near 10th, yeah, I think of October. Um, so yeah, about two and a half, one and a half months ago. Um... It, the story picks up, of course, with the Doctor and the Master in the wastes of the English countryside, but it's now the it's ice an ice wasteland because of the radiation affecting the Earth, and uh, and then of course the Dalek appears. Might as well start with the um, sound effects. Well, in the Pertwee era of Doctor Who, you wouldn't you didn't have the sound effects of the of the, of the um, Daleks, you know, it's servo mortars and such that comes from the new series, but. We decided to, Gareth and I, Gareth Seven and I, we decided to follow suit, you know, follow the style of the um, new series, and which has um, then follow, um, been copied or from, um, mirrored by Big Finish audios, which, because it's an audio adventure, you can't see the Daleks um, directly, with your eyes at least. Um, you want to create something that evokes or creates the, the idea or the essence of a Dalek. And one of those sounds now, at least on the new in the new series, is the, the servo motors. And Big Finish have uh, used a very similar, if not identical, sound of ser the servo motors to um, to create the uh, the soundscape of the Daleks. So we decided to do the same. It's not an identical sound to the um, Big Finish or um, television servo motors of the Daleks that we use in the final game. From what I understand, I think uh, Gareth used a kind of a, a radio-controlled car, toy car, to create. The sound is the basis of the sound, and I like that it's not identical because um, it means that um, there's a sense of continuity. Of maybe um, these are less powerful servos or less advanced or de de um, developed servo motors, but they are still there. I would imagine that because Big Finish is using a servo motor sound for the Daleks in earlier eras, my feeling is that those servo motors have always been there. Um, we just haven't heard them before. They retroactively are now. So the idea of the um, the Daleks motor, you know, 
peering out of the, you know, uh, softly, um, uh, what would be a good word? Um, well, I don't know what would be a good word, that it slowly comes into sound. Um, shimmering into, into sound is a very nice, effective way to begin the episode, and of course the breaking of the ice. Um, that, the idea of, the, of a Dalek coming through the ice was one of the earliest images or, or concepts that I had in creating the final game, in that, um, in, in not in every Doctor Who story, but in some of the earliest Doctor Who stories, the, idea, the image of a, of a Dalek emerging through some medium, through some, um, through some element, um, has been notable and, and remembered, and you've seen at least twice in the, um, Hartnell years, you see it, of course, in the, um, the Dalek invasion of Earth, where a Dalek uh, rises out of the water, probably, I think it's the River Thames, but it rises out of the water, and then the chase of Dalek rises out of, um, uh, the sand of the planet Aridius. So I wanted to create something like that. I'm trying to think of other ways that Daleks have emerged from something in, in Doctor Who. Um, let's see. Um, uh, a Dalek merges through, through wooden doors, um, pushes its way through doors in Evil of the Daleks. Uh, it also merges through wi- mirrors, statically charged mirrors, but we don't see that happen. We just see it come through the doors. Um, a Dalek... Uh, emerges, it's kind of revealed when the invisible Daleks implant the Daleks when they use that, the Thals use a spray can, essentially, I guess, to paint a Dalek, essentially. Um, a Dalek comes through kind of a wall or smashes through glass or something in uh, Destiny of the Daleks. Uh, let's see. I think those are the, uh, those are the better ones. I mean, I'm trying to think of other episodes. Um, I'm not sure if we've had something like that where the Dalek has emerged through, smashed through something. Um, but in any case, the, certainly the, those Hartnell episodes that I was talking about, Rising on the Water, Rising from the Sand, that was the basis of the um, inspiration for my idea of the Daleks emerging through ice. It's kind of an ice warrior. It's more ice warrior, the, the idea of the um, ice warriors smashing their way through ice. Well, I want a Dalek to smash and crack its way through ice. Um, and the idea of the Doctor, the Master, then, you know, um, um, taking advantage of the fact that the, the Dalek is trying to shoot, it's to tell you to shoot both of them, or at least it seems so, and so, you can't decide, and they escape, and the Doctor and the Master work together to, um, use the ice wall through which the Dalek had emerged to crush the Dalek, and also the continuity of the Dalek being a bit slower because of, um, it's uh, the cold, exposure to cold, it, I, and it didn't really get into the, the quote-unquote weeds of how much the Daleks would still have this, um, this weakness, the, uh, the Plan the Daleks-style weakness of, of being exposed to cold, but I figured if they use that in Plan the Daleks, or, and not the immediate um, um, predecessor episode featuring the Daleks, that would be death to the Daleks, but I figured let's use that little bit of continuity. This story is definitely much more connected to something like Plan the Daleks and Death of the Daleks, but um, it um, I decided I felt that there would be uh, that, that it would be nice to have that bit of continuity. I imagine that had the story been made then and then they had the idea of the Daleks being exposed to cold, I thought, well, oh, they 
prom might have remembered that, and so I decided to use it. Um, one is, incidentally, a behind-the-scenes element that didn't make it the final cut is I had the idea that the Dalek, in my an earlier version of this story, of this script, that the Dalek, when crushed by the ice, is only immobilized, is knocked on its side, or knocked over, and it's trapped and pinned beneath the ice, and then the master would have uh, mounted the Dalek, stepped, you know, climbed upon the Dalek, and then um, smashed, maybe with his foot or something, um, the, um, crushed the, the Dalek eye stock and impaled the mutant within, on its, upon its eye stock. Um... I have a Canadian friend who's um, who I, sh- I showed him the scene. I thought, what do you think? He thought it's probably a little too. He said, I know you like a ruthless, ma- a more ruthless mess, so that's probably all right. Probably wouldn't have fit, wouldn't fit the tone of Doctor Who, and I agreed, and so I removed that. But in my mind, that might be something the, mas- the master will do one day, impaling a Dalek upon its eye stalk. Um, and so, of course, there's a reference to the Sonic Scooter not having offensive settings. It's a little foreshadow to what happens a little bit later. Uh, let's see. And then, um, yeah, and then, um, I should give a shout-out to James Hart. He's the voice actor who voices the Daleks and other monsters and other creatures and voices in the final game. And James, I think, has access to a studio, and so he added, um, the Dalek sound effects um, as he he voiced the dialogue, and then he added the sound effects, and wonderfully well done, James, and then he, I asked him to do several different Dalek voices, which he does, like Nick Briggs, I imagine, he has three different, more or less three different, um, I say more or less because he might have more, but I think he has three basic Dalek voices, and I vo- listed the Daleks as Dalek 1, Dalek 2, Dalek 3, and I think I had the Dalek 1 with a low voice, and Dalek 2 having a no, quote-unquote normal style Dalek voice, and then Dalek 3 having a very more high-pitched voice. So, Dalek, Dalek, da 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 you know, something like that. Um, and so, a basic trio of Dalek voices. Um, and then I really wanted the idea, Then you, as the scene ends, the first scene ends, you have the, the sound of many Dalek servo motors and voices approaching. So I have the idea of maybe a few dozens, maybe, but certainly maybe maybe a hundred Daleks, but a lot of Daleks approaching. And then, of course, there's the um, the big battle. Um, and but before that, of course, I wanted to show some sense of, and this was important, another early element for me, Sarah, which is the characterization of Sarah Jane Smith in relation to the Daleks. In the classic series, of course, Sarah Jane meets the Daleks twice, including the new series, though, adding the new series, she has at least a third meeting in Journey's End, at least those episodes. Um, but in the classic series, she meets them twice. Um, technically three times if you count the... There's a 1974 audio, one of the earliest Doctor Who audios ever, I think called Glor- Glorious Deadwood or something, in which Elizabeth Slayton and I think John Pertwee making a coming appearance appeared. And it's weird in that it has Sarah Jane on her own. I think she's using the who, the, uh, the Who-mobile. <laughs> um, but she faces a Dalek and Agador from Curse of Peladon, Monster Pelon, I should say, and then she's helped by the American cal- um, cavalry. It's a weird concept, um, and so I'm not sure. It's just it, it's it's. I'm not sure why I had those choices, but but in any case, she faces a Dalek again. But but in terms of television episodes, she faces the Daleks twice in the classic era, in Deaths of the Daleks and Genesis of the Daleks. 
And um, what I found, found very interesting always about the latter of those stories is how Sarah Jane, her reaction to the Daleks, or at least the Doctor's dilemma, do I have the right to destroy the Daleks? And her response is, yes, you do. And then he says, but do I have the right? What, you know, what if you saw a child and you t- you're told that it will grow to be a mass murderer, would you still kill that child? And she says, we are talking about the Daleks, the most evil, monstrous creatures in the universe. And I thought, true. But is that ac- an accurate this, um, this, uh, depiction of Sarah Jane's experience with the Daleks? And she's never experienced nice Daleks. But her previous encounter with the Daleks, which was death to the Daleks, she, fought, she meets the Daleks at the nadir of their efficiency and killing power. On the planet Exelon, um, they, their weapons are inoperative. When she first meets the Daleks, they're locked up in a prison with her. And she almost, she, it's almost like a passing moment, like, oh, you mean Daleks? You mean those things over there? The Daleks don't, are not killing anybody. Um, I'm not even sure she really, and she sees Daleks destroyed. Um, I think so. I'm not even sure if she really sees the dogs kill too many people. So it's an expedient, easy way to get across one voice of reason in it being Sarah Jane saying, yes, you should kill the Daleks and genesis of the Daleks. But if you really, and little kids might not have understood the nuances of the the contrast of the two little kids at the time. The contra- Certainly I didn't when I watched Death of the Daleks and Genesis of the Daleks. I just knew, yeah, Sarah Jane's about the Daleks. But when you get a little bit older and you watch the episodes, you think, would Sarah Jane be telling the Doctor, the, the, would she be advocating the destruction of the Daleks and calling the most evil, ruthless creatures in the universe based on her experiences in death to the Daleks? And I felt probably not. And so I, I felt, and I still feel, that Sarah Jane must have an interim in, uh, encounter with the Daleks um, to recognize and fully become um, committed to the idea and the belief that the Daleks must be destroyed, that they are uh, an, an utterly ruthless, evil, and monstrous race. A race of monsters, essentially. And so, excuse me, and so I came, I had the idea that something must happen, and perhaps there will be several somethings, but one of those somethings would be a situation that I can read the dialogue here, where the doctor says, um, the doctor arrives and, and he's explained to Brigadier what's happening and Liz, the doctor says, Brigadier, we've got trouble. And Liz Shaw says, what's out there? And the master says, Daleks, Miss Shaw. Sarah Jane Smith says, Daleks? You mean those little pepper pots we met a while back? And the master says, Doctor, I thought you said this journal- girl was a journalist. She seems to be rather dangerously uninformed. And the doctor says, she met them on Exelon. They were stranded in weaponless. Oh, I see, says the master. Well, Miss Smith, you should prepare yourself for a very big shock. Well, and she gets, and Sarah Jane gets a shock, so I decided that this story should have a massive pitched battle between the Daleks and Unit. And it's a very big battle. You have, um, you know, it's, you know, the regular, the Dalek fire, and then the, and then the Unit soldiers getting killed, and occasional Dalek dying, but weapons fire, guns, pistols, um, rifles, bazookas, automatic fire, weaponry, and such like that. Excuse me. And also, um, um, large, heavy artillery, um, mortar rounds, grenades, bazooka tanks, hel- maybe even shots, f- missiles from helicopters. And so, just that sense of a massive, terrible battle. And of course, the after you soldiers killed, the um, the master tells Sarah Jane that Miss Smith is the true killing power of the Daleks. 
And so this instills in Sarah Jane initially, and like I said, there will probably be other things in later episodes, the first sense of the scope and terrible grandeur of the, um, of the monstrosity and um, destructive capability of the Daleks. And so this goes along, this is um, going towards the um, Sarah Jane, this starts building Sarah Jane's opinion that the Daleks are a terrible threat. Um, I would say, to be very honest, that this story probably is, therefore, uh, the what creates her opinion, because in the context of Doctor Who going after this story, well, given season 12 and how it's uh, constructed, there isn't really any room to have a, Do a Dalek story earlier for the fourth Doctor, at least, than um, Genesis of the Daleks. So if Sarah Jane's going to have a change in opinion about who the Daleks are, it's going to be on the third Doctor's side of her, of her time. Anyway, so you have the battle, and um, you have Sam Jackson saying half our men have already been killed and such. And then, the, so there's that question: What can we do? And the and everyone's thinking we've got to do something. So the master of volunteers <coughs> should be to help, and he uses the sonic screwdriver, and um, and he weaponizes it. He, and what he does, he he, allow, he modifies the screwdriver to absorb the, lo the ambient local um, radiation to um, become kind of a, a web, just a, a powerful blast to disintegrate the Daleks. Um, and a little bit like, I think, um, the stat radiation that you see in um, in Utopia, uh, which disintegrates, it's, it's a powerful radiation that disintegrates people. Well, you could argue that maybe this is the um, this was kind of maybe the intention that it's the same type of radiation, radiation that the master himself created, um, or at least weaponized. So, and I like the idea, Daleks, I am the master, and you will obey me. Now die. <laughs> um, and of course, the sonic screwdriver is badly damaged after this point. Um, and then from here, um, you have, of course, then the setup for the um, the doctor and the master going off to search for the Daleks. And I had hinted that the Doctor had some special equipment in Part 2 of the final game, and it's revealed here to be the Who-Mobile. Again, something that showed up twice on screen in the third Doctor's era. The first time was in the, um, the Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and the second time in Plan of the Daleks. I like to do things in threes, hence, a th and it's fun if it's, in, if it's an extra third story or an interim story in between to build upon the continuity of the um, um, between the first, between the other stories, um, an example I like to do with threes, like my third monk story, the misshapen planet, coming off of the time middler and the Dalek master plan, or the third, now I'm becoming a second, therefore adding to three encounters between Sarah Jane and the Daleks in the classic years. This being the second, between the Do deaths of the Daleks and Genesis of the Daleks. Well, here, I like the idea of creating a um, an interim appearance of the Who-Mobile. And the Who-Mobile, if anyone doesn't know, is um, the Third Doctor liked his gadgets, his vehicles, and of course every, most people know about, if they know about the Third Doctor, they know about his yellow roadster, uh, Bessie. Well, in John Pertwee's fifth and final series, um, they, the producers added a second car to his uh, roster of, of vehicles, and it's a silver, really kind of stingray-shaped. In fact, I think I describe it as a stingray. Yes, I do. A stingray shape, which is very kind of futuristic, mo ultra modern, even now, certainly for 1974, 73, 74, 
um, this ultra-modern silver car. Almost looks like a car that Dalek might drive, or a Cyberman or something. But, um, it's, um, it's a very low-to-the-ground vehicle that, um, that is made of metal, and it's very sleek, and it can seat at least four people inside. It has this little domed uh, cockpit with a, a hatch that opens upward. It's very beautiful. Um, and it, it drives. You see it in, in that in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And it returns in Plan the Spiders. Now, the cool thing that happens in Plan the Spiders is um, that it can... You, you discover that it can fly. So the Doctor has a flying car. Well, in this story, I had to be little creative because I thought to myself, well, I can't, I, it'll make sense because I want, I wanted a third appearance of the, the Who-Mobile retroactively, a second, you know, an interim appearance as I'm t describing. And I thought, well, it would make sense, why not just use Bessie? And I thought, no, no, they could, he could, but he has to have something that Bessie doesn't have, or at least doesn't seem to have. And I thought, well, as far as we know, Bessie can't fly. This car, we know that it can. But I thought, also thought to myself, well, Sarah Jane is on the scene in this story. And in Planet of the Spiders, it's very clear from dialogue when they're, when Sarah Jane's inside the car that the Humobile. It's not called the Humobile. In fact, I think it, the name that the producers had for it was maybe in the production notes was the Alien. Funny enough, but um, I decided not to call it the Humobile. I thought it was a little too, as they say, on the nose, a little too obvious. It just had a you know just a silver car. I didn't give it a name. But um, I thought to myself, well. What could it have is, you know, well, it can fly, and the Doctor and the Master can use this car for aerial surveillance, so they're looking for the Daleks, um, the scout ship that's mentioned in Part 2. Because uh, they're still trying to use that, maybe, to communicate or infiltrate the communication systems or the command systems of the rest of the fleet, trying to locate them and get and get there somehow. But I thought to myself, well, Sarah Jane is here. It's made explicitly clear upon the spiders that she does not know before that story that the Humobile can fly. So that how do I get around this? And I thought, in an audio adventure, because you don't see anybody, you kind of assume that all your principal characters, unless they're explicitly somewhere else, you would assume that your principal characters are, quote-unquote, within sight, on scene. So I thought, how do I get around this? And I thought, well, if it can fly, and that's something that's not revealed until later, why don't you just reveal that it's, it can also be invisible? That it's an invisible car that flies, like Wonder Woman or something, I don't know. Well, it's funny that Wonder Woman can fly herself, and yet she has an invisible plane. It's interesting that way. But in any case, a little redundant, but who knows. Um, and even then, an invisible plane, I was thinking, well, you wouldn't be able to see her. But then, of course, if it's invisible, is she invisible? Who knows? I don't know. I like comics. But in any case, um, I decided that that would be an easy way around it, that it has a stealth mode. And its stealth mode is, invis is invisibility, at least one of them. So, um... The Doctor and the Master um, get inside the Humobile and fly off and fly away to do aerial surveillance. Because I really wanted this episode to have the Doctor and the Master together on their own for quite a while. One thing that I haven't mentioned, I don't think, um, too much is that I had thought about mentioning in the last installment, but I'm, I will mention it now, is that there are several kind of um, set types, um, typed stories or story modes for how the Doctor and the Master can interact. And, um, I, w 
I, you don't have too much, and what I mean by that is you have maybe whether purely antagonistic with like Terror of the Autons or Mind of Evil, or um, and there are various elements, or maybe they could work together a little bit, or or they are. Well, I'll put it this way: you could have they're antagonistic, but they are more of a shadow cat and mouse game like Terror of the Autons, or more strictly antagonistic, but almost from the get go, get go, almost from the start, you know, at, at, um, locked in some type of combat, like, um, or at least in some type of, you know, struggle from the beginning of their meeting, like in um, Calling in Space. But then you can have something like Clause of Access, where whether they know about one another's presence in, right from the start, um, they are more in the mode of, they're more in the mode of, of helping one another because of various reasons. Um, for mutual survival and such. And um, I don't, we don't know much about at all about the original version of the final game because there isn't really an original version. But Terrence Dix said that there might have been some type of catastrophe or danger involved in the story in which the Doctor and the Master probably would have had to work together. So I thought, well, let's preserve that idea. And so I thought to myself, well, how can this work? And my touchstone, therefore, um, for crafting the story uh, was, um, at least in the beginning, the Clause of Axels, because that's the that's the one, or at least a, um, one of the um, Pertwee Delgado uh, stories where the Doctor and the Master are not automatically fighting one another, but in an uneasy relationship, a truce, an alliance of sorts. So I thought, let's let's forge that. And part of that reason was also to give it, you give give the characters uh, a space where they could interact somewhat peacefully and have a chance to speak to one another. They often can do that, at least in this area, but they could speak to one another um, without an initial concern. They know that they will fight once again, but there is a sense of we don't have to fight right now. We have a, some more pressing matters. They have a chance to discuss with one another who they are. And you see that a lot in part, a little bit in part one, very much so in part two. And then continuing here in part three. So, um... In the within the invisible um, stealth mode, uh, Humobile, the Doctor and the Master are, are off on their own, flying and, and uh, discovering things. You also discover that the uh, the Humobile has um, it has um, um, audio surveillance, audio um, um, connection equipment, so it can speak to, uh, connect and tap into the uh, unit unit communications and such. Um, and so, therefore, you can hear the doctor's voice, you know, through a speaker or, you know, just through a loudspeaker and such. And so it, it departs, and it leaves behind the other heroes, Benton, Yates, Brigadier, uh, Sarah Jane, and, and Liz, to wait. And um, wait on their own. And they have to take shelter with the other unit soldiers in, in the convoy. Um, and... I also want to give this period a little bit of time to give a sense of some mystery of what's happening, build a mystery with with the Prime Minister, with uh, Jeremy Thorpe. So you have certain scenes where Thorpe and Jackson are in Thorpe's car, or the, you know, their, their armored van and such, just waiting. And I add a little bit of a sense of mystery in that the Thorpe um, activates his radio, and he, on the through the radio, you can hear an, a, a pulsing sound, which is the same sound as some of the... Um, Bessie's surveillance equipment and such, um, you know, its its own, you know, sonar. So it's a wonder how how is that happening? How is the, how is he able to do that? Um. 
And so, the Doctor and the Master, of course, they discover um, the the uh, scout ship, and they arrive, and and they and they get inside. Um, now thi- and then we add again some mystery. The Doctor, there's a question of, well, this scout ship is rather advanced. Is it possible that, well, they, and the Master says, well, they have time travel capability. So there's a sense of, well, I guess they're from the future. So again, this one is the early reconnections. There's a reference to the invasion of the 26th century. So, of course, the events of uh, Plan the Daleks, Frontier Space Plan the Daleks. And um, as they get inside, I wanted to evoke a sense that the soundscape of... Um, of this, I, you know, I wanted to evoke a soundscape of the '60s. Uh, definitely, when it comes to the Daleks, um, so the metal, because you, you saw it a little bit more in the '60s. Dal- in fact, you really did. Daleks spaceships, their saucers. You see a little bit in the '70s. You see a Dalek spaceship in um, in Death to the Daleks. Um, it's not a saucer, but in any case. Um, just these sounds, so the metal floors, the metal walls, uh, kind of eerie music. I love the music that plays in Power of the Daleks. Um, this sounds of that, that 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 rising note, like almost like a scratch, uh, something like a, a echoey scratch or 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 tap, lengthened tap on, or pull across metal. Um, scrape across metal, a scraping metallic sound a little bit. So I wanted to evoke that sense with the music and the and the sound um, effects and such, the soundscape. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, um, the Doctor and the Master, of course, encounter a few Daleks. And what? But also, while that's happening, while the Doctor, before that, the Ma- Doctor Master exploring the um, the saucer. We have a again building. We go back and start to build the mystery between the brigadier and Jeremy Thorpe. We're seeing their their relationship. It's almost like Thorpe is probing or testing the waters with the brigadier. Like, do you trust the doctor? Can we trust him? And the, and the brigadier is saying, "Yes, I do. I absolutely trust him." And 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 Thorpe, his dialogue is such. And there's that moment. Oh, we should be on a first name basis. Well, maybe we will be. Says the brigadier when the time is right. And the brigadier. Well, the dialogue is. Very good, Prime Minister, says uh, the Brigadier. He says, oh, it's Jeremy, you know, says Thorpe. And I hope I may call, come to call you Alistair when this is over. With my closest friends and allies, I like a little sense of familiarity. The Brigadier says, yes, perhaps there we will share a first-name basis when this is over. Prime Minister, understood. Brigadier, stay warm out there. You too, sir. And then Thorpe says, unfortunately, I'm beginning to think we just won't understand one another. And so that's kind of a further sense of, hmm, understand what? on a personal level, or more of a professional level, or perhaps an ideological level. Interesting. This I think so. Um, and then, of course, while the Doctor and the Master are searching, we just have some dialogue. And I felt this would have happened in the episode where you're just getting to know where the people are while these things are happening. And, and um, Mr. Brigadier showing his unfailing faith in the Doctor, that uh, the Doctor won't uh, fail them. And I wanted to add... Again, a building sense of Liz being kind of like a, a big sister, as I mentioned before, to Sarah Jane. Um, when the unit soldiers first start getting killed, and Sarah Jane's very scared when she sees the just the indiscriminate killing of the Dal- by the Daleks, Liz is there comforting Sarah Jane, saying, it's all right, it's all right, keep calm, keep calm. And so um, Liz confides in the Brigadier. She, she says she's worried about Sarah Jane. 
Although Sarah Jane seems to be fine, she's just worried about her exposure to this type of carnage. Excuse me. Um, Sarah, Liz, Liz says, um, backing up, she says, Brigadier, when they're meeting, they're inside their unit truck, but I guess you call a lorry, and they're huddling from the cold. She says, Brigadier, you look cold and miserable, and Brigadier says, direct as ever, Professor Shaw. That way there are no surprises between us. I'm worried about Sarah, Sarah Jane, though. Oh, why? You know why. She's young, still new to the unit way of life, and she's just witnessed a war zone and an act of genocide. I'm not saying she's not up to it, but I understand, Liz. Believe me, I do. I'll speak to her. And then it's the nice moment where she says, Liz says, thank you whatever your first name is, and the reader says, it's Alastair, and sometimes I almost forget it myself. And I wanted to just give a sense of, you know, a little bit of familiarity and, and mutual, of course, the respect, we know it's there, but also a little bit of affection. When it comes to the, the, the Doctor's three main female companions, the third Doctor, Liz, Joe, and Sarah Jane, clearly the one that was probably least closest to the Brigadier. You could argue the doctors, well, they're a little more professional. They're, there's a warmth, but, you know, it's not like Joe or Sarah Jane. Joe would probably be the closest to the third doctor, but... But, um... Liz, when it comes to the brigadiers, you could argue is definitely the least close to the brigadier. Because she is, um... She's not someone who... You get the sense, like, Joe would, would back down if if... if called upon to obey, essentially, or obey orders, follow orders by the Brigadier. She, um... Like, there's that moment of the Silurians where the Brigadier says, Oh, Michelle will take care of personnel. She's like, Oh, yes? Like, oh, really? I'm, I'm, I'm going to take care of that, huh? Hmm. But she does it in such a way that it's not... She's not... doesn't seem very... Not very boorish or... 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 or um... Prideful or... or haughty. She's just more like, well, there's a haughtiness and auteur to it. But she's very um, she's very aware of her worth. And she likes to be able to control her own you argue, destiny, I suppose. Anyway. Um, but I wanted to establish a, a little more affection between the Liz, Liz and the Brigadier. They will never be close buddies or anything. But a little more affection. Um, a little more, a little greater sense of of they know each other for quite a while now, uh, but from my perspective, they know each other for about six years. And if this story is taking place in the middle later seventy five, mid seventy five, and they've known each other since middle later sixty nine, so yeah, nearly six years. They're, they've known each other. They've been colleagues or allies and helping one another. And remember my idea of this: that Liz has not terminated her association with the Doctor at all after the events of Inferno. She may not be actively working with Unit, but she still helps out and when called upon now and then. And I imagine she's very busy, so you don't see her much. Otherwise, it would create a different feel than what you saw on screen, you know, between seasons 8 through 11, but... At least for the third Doctor's era, but I definitely have the sense... You have the sense that she is around when when needed and when available. And so, um... Again, and then we have a shift to the Brigadier speaking with Sarah Jane, seeing how she is. Now, when it comes to Sarah Jane... Although, definitely the longest period of time on continuous is between shared time is with Joe and the Brigadier. Just because of returning appearances, it's Sarah Jane and the Brigadier who developed the closest relationship on screen to the point where that I would say that I will say that they have more, more like a father and daughter relationship. By the time you get to the um, 
era of uh, Enemy of the Bane, the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith. Definitely a father-daughter relationship. And, um, and funny enough, I think I think that um, it might be interesting to think if the breeder would ever like adopt Sarah Jane. That would be nice. That would be nice. Ah, uh, some idea I have, I think. But um, and so you have that moment where the brigadier is speaking in very paternally to, but in a kind way to Sarah Jane. He says, "She says, hello, brigadier. I'm glad you got away from the cold. Some of it, at least. Yes, and you as well. And you're all right. Oh, always, brigadier. How else can I be? Yes. How else? Chin up, brigadier." It's like my Aunt Lavinia says in these times. I'm sorry, I just hear her in my head. And the um, and the, the note is imitating Margaret Rutherford, another such-like old lady of character. Keep an open mind, a warm heart, and trust to thick socks. I suppose in this situation all we can do is wait and hope the doctor finds a way to stop the Daleks. And the Brigadier, of course, says, You have the right way of thinking, so we keep our hopes warm, if nothing else. And then he says to himself, Thick socks. So just that, I wanted to add this little moment that you would have seen and at any point in the in the Pertwee years, but certainly very much towards the end, these little just those little character moments that don't advance the plot so much, but they deepen the character interactions. Because they've known these people have known each other for a long time, like with the Brigadier and Liz, Benton and Yates and such. Or they will know each other for a long time, like Sarah Cheney and the Brigadier. And so then returning to the Dalek saucer, at this point, um they discover the control room and three Daleks. <laughs> the, the doctor says, this sounds like the control center. And so I wanted to use, um, and specifically put this in the notes, the, the double pulse of the Dalek engines, the boom, 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 boom. I wanted that. You have that from the beginning of the series and you have it even now in, in the new series. And so, um, the doctor and the master, you know, the doctor says, this sounds like the control center. What do you see inside? And the master says, navigation equipment, propulsion control, and three Daleks. Well, doctor, are you at last satisfied on that point? Because the doctor was wondering why he didn't see more Daleks. And he says, well, they've probably all been destroyed. Satisfied, perhaps. Content far from it. We've got to get them out of our way. And, of course, there are no more ice walls, as the master said. But they, but the doctor says he's got something else. And so, again, I wanted to have, at this point, I, I really wanted to have a greater, a greater sense of continuity, connectivity with the television episodes. So I thought to myself, well, if I've got the Who-mobile, and this is, of course, before Plan the Daleks, so I don't want to have too much. In, I can have some things there, but I can also have whatever's come before. And so I really wanted to, because you have Mike Yates, I really wanted this to be a follow-up, not a sequel, but a definite thematic continuation of the, the fallout from Invasion of the di uh, Dinosaurs. Because they've, uh, this interim version, again, interim versions, interim version of the who, appearance of the Who-mobile, interim meeting between Sarah Jane and the Daleks, an interim appearance uh, version of Mike Yates between the events of Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Plan the Spiders. So here we have an upgraded version of the, um, the Doctor's molecular destabilizer. And the Master recognizes this as it's much like what you used, to subdue the, the dinosaurs, the, those marauding dinosaurs. And the doctor says, how do you know about that? And the master says, doctor, I am a time lord. I keep abreast of all local history. Um, and of course, they're going to set up a distraction. I, I wanted to start setting up with the master. I really like the idea of the master, if the doctor and the master, in many ways, ha have the same mind as the fourth doctor says in Locopolis. I like the sense that it's very hard to keep, when it comes to the doctor and the master, to keep a secret from one another. They can, but... I like the idea that, unless they're really actively trying to keep something a secret, that the, uh, one of the other just knows what's happening. 
And so the doc, the master, although he's imprisoned during the events of Invasion of the Dinosaurs in, in the unit prison, he's aware of what happened during that story. Now, of course, he just passes off saying, I'm a, I, I'm, I keep abreast of local, all local history. But he knows about the doctor's um, machinery and newest weapons. So I wanted to use something, that uh, uh, a machine that was had been seen before, and I thought, well, the... Something easiest would have been something shown earlier in this season, therefore invasion of dinosaurs. The doctor's um, destabilizer, or his, his the machine that he was using to try to subdue or uh, disperse the remove the dinosaurs from this time zone. Well, and they would what you know what would have uh, um, immobilized them and such. This is a, a more weaponized version, but so um, that's what happens. And of course, the master provides a distraction. He does not sell the Doctor out to the Daleks. He is helping the Doctor, at least seemingly so. And I like what the Daleks say. He says, you destroyed our army to the, the Master who's um, in, you know, confronted them. He says, you are an enemy of the Daleks. And the Master says, perhaps so, but I am not the enemy of the Daleks, not your oldest foe. You speak of the Doctor, where is the Doctor? The Doctor must be exterminated. Then you should go and find him. I'm sure he's eager to confront you. And so the, Do the Master leads the Daleks outside of the command center, and the Doctor blasts the Daleks with the destabilizer and disperses them. And and again, you have these moments of um, uh, contrast to their viewpoints. The Master says, what a glorious achievement. Total molecular dispersal. Well done, Doctor. Such a control of chaos. And the Doctor says, only you would consider this application of technology glorious. I consider it lamentable. And uh, <laughs> the Master says, Doctor, it's best not to concern yourself with the outcomes of your actions. You'll be much more productive that way. Oh. And the doctor says, I usually think concern produces the best action, but let's not waste time arguing viewpoints. I really want to, and the master's agreed, let's make a state of the Daleks' controls. I really want a sense of con the contrast of their opinions. Anything destructive, the master will find glorious. Anything that involves the loss of life, the master will find uh, a tragedy. Um, and they will never agree. But um, they set about to communicate with the brigadier, and they, they do, and then the, the unit convoy starts making their way towards the... the uh, um, the Dalek saucer, because of the terrible weather, it's going to take a little while. Um, but, of course, because he's keyed into the communications, the Prime Minister also is aware. But the Prime Minister makes wants to make sure that they get to the uh, Dalek saucer first. Uh, so, while this is happening, and of course the Brigadier drives Bessie, I, wanted, I just wanted the idea of the Brigadier driving Bessie to get to the convoy, leading the way. Um, this is one of his... I want to give him a, these, a, a series of, you know, big moments. And so as they're going, um, and of course, Mike Yates gets the chance to relay the radio coordinates of the of the Daleks also to the rest of the unit group. So, by de facto, Yates is back with the unit, um, helping them. He's not a captain, but he is helping. He's trusted in helping them. Um, and of course, I had introduced in part two the whole idea that Liz starts to question what happened to the Yates, saying, wait a minute, he, w he wouldn't turn against you. It sounds like you were describing you may have been in some type of hypnotized state or something. W what's really happening? So maybe they're thinking that Ye Yates wasn't really himself not responsible for his actions because of what happened in the Green Death where he's controlled by the by boss and then his mind's somewhat addled by the Blue Crystal. Um, meanwhile, back at the... Um, um, Dalek Saucer, the Doctor and the Master discover that more Time Lord technology integrated into the um, Dalek so uh, the Daleks systems. So there's this question of they know that the, the Saucer comes to the future and after the events of the 26th century so the era, so after the Doctor is quite some time after their attempts to weaken the Earth Empire 
and the doctor recognizes him. He says this, unfortunately, yeah, they, the Daleks have time travel capabilities. He says, oh, this is fascinating. The Daleks have developed a new weapons platform that generates and stores potent quantities of radiation, but something's not right. And the Master says, it's all quite no- looks, all looks quite normal to me, Doctor. After all, the Daleks were born from a nuclear war, so their weapon systems should thrive on radioactive materials. Yes, but to harness these amounts of energy would require very sophisticated technology beyond the scope of even the Daleks' abilities. If I can just pull up those some schematics. No. No, this is impossible. And then... The master says, oh dear, what, now what have you found? See for yourself and tell me if that doesn't look familiar. And the master says, oh, I, now I understand. These weapon systems include elements of time lore design. The doctor doesn't trust the master. He's like, can you explain? The master says, what do you mean? And then well, he says, the doctor, of course, says, well, you've worked with them before. What have you given them? And the master says, you know, I gave them some fear induction technology, expertise in primitive psychology. But other than that, I offered very little. But then I, he, I added a little continuity. He says that he gave them weapons guidance system advances and the plague missiles. So I wanted... The plague missiles come from death to the Daleks as a reference to the Daleks using pla- um, um, missiles with loaded with plague, you know, bacteria probably, infection, infective, infectious materials, to bomb colony worlds. And so I wanted to give a sense that I don't state whether or not death to the Daleks pre or post dates... Um, in terms of you know, human history, plan of the Daleks. Uh, in my mind, it probably post-states it, but who knows? I like to think that because you know it's. Well, I just like the sense of you know progression, from one story to the next. But you know things happen earlier, things happen later. In any case, um, I just wanted to give a, I wanted to give the master just a small foothold presence in these other Daleks. I wanted to give the Master a foothold presence in Death of the Daleks. The sense of, well, if he's worked with the Daleks and he gave them some technology, it stands to reason he gave them perhaps other technologies too. And so I just want to give the Master, wherever possible, a presence in Season 11. So presence in Time Warrior or just after, because of his, the prologue of the story where he surrenders himself to the, to the, um, to the uh, to unit, and then a presence in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, where he's aware of the events of the of that story and knows what the Doctor's molecular destabilizer is. A presence in Death to the Daleks, where he um, uh, has it's revealed that he gave the Daleks their weapons guidance systems and their plague missiles. And it was just that it's a small thing, but it's uh, I wanted to. I just felt like why not a little reference there, and the Doctor. Um, the, and the doctor says, and the master says, I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you're seeing their handiwork, the plague missiles, from time to time. And the doctor says, yes, recently enough, very nasty work they do too. Um, but of course the master's saying, well, there's another player here. Someone else, the same people that um, altered Miss Shaw's SSS control systems, they've, uh, they're uh, altering um, the Daleks systems too. So it's just, you're wondering what's happening. But this gives the doctor the idea, well, this might give us a window of opportunity. And the master says, you mean a backdoor into the Dalek systems? Yes. If there's Time Lord technology present, then they, they could use that to their advantage as they are Time Lords and maybe find a way to link into the Dalek systems. And the master has an idea, maybe they could use the communication systems to create a disruptive p- impulse. But then the doctor says, but we still have to deal with the force fields surrounding the Earth. Um, and the master says, and the doctor says, we can't get through the force field. And the master says, well, then we seem to have arrived in an impasse. We need the force field intact to act as protection from the Daleks' radiation, but we also need to lower the field to disperse the radiation already accumulated in the atmosphere. And then there's the atom misfortune of the override affecting your TARDIS. 
And then the doctor says, if only we could use the TARDIS without using it. Of course, that's the answer. And the master wants hap- what's happening, and the doctor says, we use the TARDIS to breach the barrier and disperse the Dalek fleet without using the TARDIS. And the master says, you're talking in contradictions. If you actually think about what I'm saying, you'll see I'm talking perfect sense. We don't have to use the TARDIS itself to reach the Dalek fleet, just as power systems. We can link them through the spacecraft. Yes, yes, it's possible. If we link the TARDIS's dematerialization circuit and power systems with this craft's time engines, and with a little help from your molecular dispersal unit, then we should be able to construct a working temporal transmat beam. With that, we would have more than enough power to break through the force field and disrupt the Dalek fleet's temporal signature. We could effectively erase them from time altogether. Doctor, it's a genius. Yes, and supremely dangerous. Um, but, as I see it, this is our best option. So, again, touch, touching um, back to the the interplay between the Doctor and the Master in um, Claws of Axis, where they're working together to create a system and engineer it and a, a way forward. Maybe even a little bit Terror the Autons, where they very quickly improvise a solution to repel the nesting consciousness. But, um... um and then, but of course they have the problem that the Doctor's TARDIS is not present. So when I was constructing this story, I thought to myself, well, I had got to this point where I thought, okay, they could use the Doctor's TARDIS, and I thought, wait a minute, but the Doctor's TARDIS is back at Unit HQ, and how are we going to delay the events of the story? So the Doctor, I've already established that travel is very difficult in these weather conditions. How am I going to establish, how am I going to, am I going to delay the action the Doctor can travel back to Unit HQ, and is the Master going to come with him, and or what, and I thought, what can I do? And then I thought of something, mining again, mining the series continuity, but in an interesting way, which is, the Master, um, um, he says, once again, you underestimate me, Doctor. You know, again, like, oh, as far back as Terry the Autons, you underestimate me, Doctor. Let me be quite plain. Either you hand over that dematerialization circuit to me now, or I shoot Miss Grant. So, again, the Doctor keeps underestimating the Master. And, he sa- and the Master says, I have the solution here. And then he 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 removes a machine a little device from his jacket pocket and what is it? The doctor says, "My word, that's a Statenheim summoner or Statenheim remote control." The same thing which we saw in the two doctors. I had a little bit of continuity here, which is where the doctor says, "I haven't seen one of those since I can't even remember when." But the override interference, the master says, "It won't be an issue if your TARDIS has compatible technology to act as a beacon, especially over such a comparatively infinitesimal distance." The doctor says, "All right, now how does this work again?" Oh yes, and then he whistles. So definitely um, touching back to the two doctors. Now the two doctors, um, I didn't want to get into the whole nature of of exactly really what's happening in the two doctors because of those of the classic series three multi-doctor stories, three doctors, five doctors, two doctors. Two doctors is definitely the one that's hardest to fathom in that it's very easy to figure out, okay, what brings the doctors together? Omega and therefore the Omega crisis and three doctors in the time wards, then pull the first two doctors forwards to the third doctor's era. And then Barusa using the time scoop to pull not with complete success, but the first four doctors forward to the fifth doctor's era. In the two doctors, it's just the second doctor's is just on a mission for the Time Lords, and something happens, and then for some whatever reason, the Sixth Doctor feels it. Um, just by nature, of, and, and, and and the story goes out of its way a little bit. It takes a moment to say, how is it you can to be two places at the same time? And the Sixth Doctor says, when you travel as much as around as I do, it's it's almost inevitable that you're bound to run into yourself at some point. So it's just a catch-all saying, look, I do a lot of traveling. I'm going to meet myself now and then. And yet, 
if that's the case, it would happen a lot more often. Now, in things like the books and the audios, you kind of see that happening a little bit. But even so, there were so few, at the time, stories. I don't want to get too much of attention, but I'm just stating the ideas. I did, and this gives you a sense. I didn't want to get... There were so few stories at the time that that whole idea, oh, the Doctor could just meet himself, just didn't seem to fly too much when the first two times seemed to be big events that allowed multiple Doctors to interact. But I'm saying that because to demonstrate that, yes, I get into the weeds of that story, I want to do it, but I don't have an end... I, I like to create retcon, you know, headcanon ideas of, of explaining things. I still, to this day, have not been able to figure out the two Doctors. Uh, I've not been able to create a retcon for that story. I will one day, it's on my list. But I say that to say that I, when I start thinking about two doctors, I, I, I feel compelled to try to explain it. So when I thought of two, a two doctors element, use the Statenheim remote control to bring the doctor's TARDIS to, um, to where he is. And so the, the master has one. Um, I just, I, I didn't exactly hesitate, but I thought, well, do I, I automatically have the idea, well, do I explain anything about the two doctors? But what can I explain? It's one doctor too late and three doctors too early. So, no, but I can at least give a little sense that there's something there. That listeners will know what I'm talking about when the, ma when the Doctor recognizes the Statenheim... He calls it a summoner, but it's a Statenheim remote control. With a Statenheim device. He recognizes it, and he says, Well, I haven't seen one since... Well, I can't remember one, and hence, there's why. Remember, the second Doctor has one, but the sixth Doctor can't remember how he got it. <laughs> Which is interesting. Um, but then also the whistle. How do you activate the Statenheim remote control? With the whistle. And so, um... That same type of um, continuity. So I, I liked that. And the doctor says, it actually works. And the master says, you see, Dr. All takes a little goodwill to produce good results. So, um, one interesting thing that happens here is, I might as well explain it. It's, um, uh, and it's, it's now probably slightly less clear because there's no narration, but there was we had a lot of narration in part one. And that was meant to echo a little bit the Big Finish style of um, the Third Doctor and early adventure audios. So the early adventures the, and the Companion Chronicles, Third Doctor audios and adventures and such. Um, just to give a sense of, you know, explaining to the audience who the, um, who the characters are and certain things, because they might be aware of the, who the Doctor is, but, they don't, but new series audience members might not know who Bessie is, maybe not even the Brigadier, perhaps the Brigadier, certainly Sarah Jane Smith. But Benton Yates, maybe not, and certainly the events of their, their histories back then, they wouldn't be aware of this. So I wanted to create a narrator, voiced by John Kolchak Pertwee, to um, give a sense of, of things and events happening. But um, we didn't want the story to be overloaded by the narrator, and so after, in the succeeding parts, although I wrote narration for the remaining episodes, um, as we went to the editing phase, our editor, Tony G. Fowler, rightfully so, removed a lot of the narration, which is fine, and I think that was the right thing to do. In the end, Gareth Severn and I decided simply to remove the narration completely beyond part one, so, uh, because at this point, it, I had written the script in, in, enough of a, in a way that um, events can be explained. But one thing that is perhaps lost because of the removed narration is... Um, something that happens, not the scene, but the context of the scene, the visual context of the scene, where the doctor, uh, when he's preparing to um, set up the temporal transmit, he goes inside um, the TARDIS console room, and then he stops and looks at something and says, oh, definitely not mine at all. 
Now, I think it's clear enough from what happened in the in part one that he's looking at the um, the 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 burgundy uh, velvet jacket that appeared that Sarah Jane discovered in part one, and that jacket um, reappears here in part three, and so that's what's happening with the Doctor saying definitely not mine at all. Um, but something else is that it's lost because of the missing narration, the removed narration, and it's not essential to the plot at all, is that the Doctor uh, removes his own jacket that he's wearing, and then when he's done with his uh, work, he uh, wears another jacket, a different jacket, a different colored jacket. I might as well explain what the purpose of this is. Uh, maybe it, it's, again, not necessary, but I thought it would be, I suppose, cute or fun to do, which is um, pair, pair the, the Master, the Delgado Master, with the Third Doctor, wearing every jacket that he wears, that he wore, I should say, or, or wears, whatever, um, in the stories, the succeeding uh, Delgado's death. To explain that, to make this clearer, the Doctor and the Master, of course, meet up in many different stories and such, right? And the Doctor, third Doctor, had a very similar, general look to his costume, but many different, you know, jackets and such different colors, different styles. Um, after Delgado's death and making his final appearance in Frontier in Space, the Doctor, of course, wearing this green, his sh his uh, uh, shamrock green um, velvet jacket, um, portrays seven more stories. And, um, um, at least that were broadcast, he filmed eight others, and one of them was the Three Doctors, but that's said earlier. The point is, from Plan the Daleks through Plan the Spiders, the two planet stories, um, the Doctor wears different velvet jackets and such that he never wore while facing the Master. So I thought to myself, to close that gap, let's preserve that order of stories. So if you have a, a jacket from Upon the Spiders, then a jacket from Green Death, jacket from Invasion of Dinosaurs, and so forth. Let's have the Doctor meet up with the Master while wearing all, every jacket that he had, that he wore in, all, in those last seven stories. So, to at least... I don't want to give away spoilers, but I will say that he wears all those jackets, and I will explain po a portion of that order. In the prologue sequence of Part 1 of the final game, I mentioned the Doctor's wearing a scarlet smoking jacket. Well, a scarlet velvet jacket, because I don't think the third Doctor smokes. Um, definitely no. Um, that's the jacket that he wore, that he wears from Plant the Spiders. Um, then you have a scene where the Doctor... The next scene, I wanted to preserve the order, so when he's inside the TARDIS, um, and the Brigadier and the Doctor are talking about the, Ced um, the Cedric Center, and Sarah Jane and the Doctor are seeing the interstitial monitor and noticing the end forms, the Doctor's clearly wearing his uh, shamrock um, jacket. That's what he was wearing, at least at the beginning of um, the Green Death. Now, I didn't feel it was necessary to have the Doctor and the Master share a scene while the Doctor's wearing that jacket, because they already do on screen in Frontier in Space. The Doctor wore that jacket the shamrock jacket in that story as well. And also before that in Carnival of Monsters. So, I didn't feel that was necessary, but uh, then I have the Doctor wearing a... The tur he says he, he's wearing a turquoise jacket. In, um... In, uh... In... in from this, when he goes to visit the Cedric Center. And that's the same jacket he, he's wearing when he first visits the Master in his prison at the end of Final Game Part 1. Well, that's the jacket that he wears... It, although it might be aquamarine, but, you know, I call it turquoise, might be. I didn't really, I should have, I wasn't quite sure what, it looks turquoise in some of the photos I've seen, so I don't think it's ever quite stated, but 
it's meant to be the jacket that he wears in um, in uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. So I really want to give a sense that this is the Doctor in Season 11. That's the only story, in as far as, yeah, that I know. It's the only story the Doctor wore that particular shade. It's neat that in Season 11, he started to really, almost every story, wear a different, a new, or one-time scene um, jacket. I mean, the, and there are other things before them, but, like, the Scarlet Jacket from Plan the Spiders, at least once after he leaves the TARDIS. That's the only time he wears that coat. Invasion of the Dinosaurs is the only time he wears that coat. Um, I had thought for a while that his outfit in Death to, Death to the Daleks is the only time he wears it, but he, in fact, wears that in the Green Death as well. Um, but the, the coat that he wears in, um, the emerald coat that he wears in Monster Pellon is the only time he wears that outfit. The only time he wears the outfit in Plan the Spider is that pretty much black. It's almost like what he wore in Season 7, but it's different. That's the only time he wears it, too. So a lot of new story uh, costumes that he only wore once. Very nice. So you remember them. Or not, but still very nice. So anyway, he's wearing the turquoise costume through um, the through like the second half of part one, through part two, and then through most of part three. So, but what's what's lost because of the narration uh, being removed is that when he leaves the TARDIS um, later on, he's done through the Paris. He's now wearing his uh, purple jacket, which uh, he wore in Green, the debut in the Green Death, and which he wore only in. Um, Death to the Daleks. So again, very solidly, season 11. So fans might not know that, uh, people listening to this story, but you get the sense that it's there because thanks to Marshall Tankersley, um, that's the costume that he's wearing on the cover of Part 3. Uh, Marshall took that, who's a third Doctor voice actor, and therefore he's perfect to be creating the, the covers for the final game, the individual covers. He took from one of the radio, the radio, one of the Radio Times covers for the tenth anniversary of Doctor Who, so very nineteen seventy three, probably late seventy three. Um, this image of the Third Doctor, kind of in a kind of a defensive position, kind of starting to push away from an, an advancing Dalek, Cyberman, and Sea Devil. Interesting version of the Cyberman that it looks like an invasion Cyberman, but its chest unit is from earlier. From it's a weird amalgamation. An aviation-style Cyberman with a kind of like a Tomb of the Cyberman-style uh, chest unit, I believe. Yes. Not quite sure what I think about it because I like the idea of either something new or something more advanced, but uh, a more advanced-style Cyberman wearing older-style equipment. It's not. I'm not against it. It's not. Oh, that's interesting. I would have preferred something new to make it look very pertwee. Um, I suppose it does because it never appeared on screen. But in any case. Um. Um, so the cover, it's appropriate that the, the purple outfit, the purple jacket appears on the cover of part three, because at the end of the story, the end of the episode, the Doctor's wearing that jacket. But one other thing I should note, I'll read the, um, the narration, and that was lost, and uh, that's been rem lost, but removed, when the Doctor enters the TARDIS console room to, uh, begin his, um, his work on the, um, Temple Transmet. The Doctor threw open the doors to the TARDIS and entered the console room. He walked over to a nearby cupboard where he retrieved a gadget-filled toolbox. Inside the cupboard, he also noted the maroon jacket he had discovered earlier. The doctor lifted the jacket and examined it once more. And this time he noticed something stuffed inside one of the pockets. It was a large-brimmed, dark-brown fedora, which the doctor studied with distaste. Definitely not mine at all, the doctor says. Um... Number one, the costume, that, that costume might not be, mar the jacket probably not maroon, it's probably more burgundy, so I'm glad, it's probably a good thing because it's probably not the right color, but in any case, 
I thought it was maroon, but it, it's more of a burgundy. But in any case, what the doctor, one thing that's, one detail that's missing from, or removed with, with the removed narration is that the doctor's not just saying, oh, this, this jacket's not mine at all. It's the hat. So a further sense of, of that, uh, a further sense of, um, you know, a coming change. And then the, the little, little further narration says, the doctor buried the hat in the jacket pocket and threw the jacket into the cupboard. Then he removed his own jacket and began to roll up his shirt sleeves. So that's, um, and, um, and here's a little bit of extra narration that was removed too. Meanwhile, outside the TARDIS, the master looked to the main control unit of the command deck, the Dalek command deck. He ran his fingers along one corner of the control panels. Um, and then, of course, the dialogue that exists is where the doctor, the master says, you are quite right, doctor, we have more than enough time to accomplish our goals. And the doctor inside the TARDIS says, are you coming to help or not? And the master says, coming, doctor, coming. Um, now, he's the doctor, the master running his fingers along the edge of a con the control panel has significance. It, it doesn't, you don't have to see it, but it's, I guess the removal of the narration, it added a lot of visual elements. It's probably redundant, some of it's maybe redundant, but it added some visual cues as to what's happening on screen, quote-unquote, what would have been happening on screen. Um, yeah, I just thought I would mention that. It was neat, interesting stuff. But anyway, the uh, the convoy, the unit convoy arrives, they enter the, uh, and plus the, the, uh, the um, Prime Minister and his men, and they, uh, inside the control room, the the, do the doctor and the master hear people approaching. Uh, and and at this point, the, doc the doctor has... Um, I'm looking for this. Maybe I didn't have a narration that, that explicitly stated this. But the, ma the doctor, by this point, is wearing his purple jacket. He's, uh, he's not wearing his purple jacket. Um, and then everyone's gathered together, and, and Liz notices, oh, this doctor, you've connected the, all these cables. You've connected your TARDIS to the ship, doctor. You're planning to hybridize their system somehow. Top marks, professor. Um, and, of course, you know everyone's wondering what's happening. And the doctor explains that they're They've created this device to get through the force field and such. And they're going to activate the machine. But as he does, just like in part one, the Doctor has another psychic attack, another episode. And he's within the vortex. And, he, and this time you hear the voices. And it's happens to be, and the voice of someone speaking, um, saying, Doctor, don't use the machine, don't trust the Master. It's the same voice as the narrator. Interesting, huh? Makes you wonder, maybe he had a purpose for having John Kolchak Pertwee voice the narrator and also the one of the voices and that's identifies as a, as a time lord but at this point the doctor reveals that you know it's in the time lords have been trying to contact him and he's not he's not to use the machine he's not to trust the master and then of course you have the foreboding music the um, master's music theme from the classic series and this is where the alliance breaks down and you realize oh the master's a bad guy after all and uh, he um he brandishes his uh, tissue compression limiter which was hidden. Um, it's not made clear, and it doesn't have to be, but the narration was hinting that when the master ran his fingers along the edge of the control panel that the master's uh, tissue compression luminary is hidden there. But he could just simply have had it hidden anyway, anywhere. It doesn't matter. But he says, the doctor says, it's deadly, deadly to all living matter. And But I love the way that Terry, Terry Cooper voiced and performed the line where the master's activate the machine. He says with such authority, activate the machines. And again, I also the way that Tony Filer delivered this line, You devil! I knew we couldn't trust you. But you're forgetting who has the most firepower here. Mystery God, surround the master. Again, Tony, Terry, you did, you have done excellent. You do excellent 
impressions of these of these wonderful characters. Well done. But then here comes the big twist, which was when the uh, Jeremy Thorpe, the Prime Minister, says he orders his men through Sam Jackson to um, uh, to uh, subdue the uh, unit personnel and the Doctor. So you discover, oh shoot, the and then Doctor. The Brigadier says, Prime Minister, what are you doing? The Doctor says, I should think his meaning is obvious, Brigadier. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is in league with the Master. So that's the big shock. Oh, shoot. The Doctor and, excuse me, the Master and the Prime Minister are allies. They are the true alliance. And um, my, my idea for this was simply that what would really raise the stakes? So I thought of this in the, uh, on my own, that the Prime Minister would be helping the Master and that that would really give a sense of danger and of doom, and of and of uh, a dire situation. I'm using a lot of D words, but, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot of alliteration, as the fourth doctor says about the uh, Sontarans in the Major of Time. In any case, um, repeated um, non-vowel so- consonant sounds. But in any case, what you have here is uh, a real situation where, oh goodness, we... There's real trouble when the when the highest authority, at least government authority in the land, is allied with the bad guy. Um, and I thought of that in the sense of to add what could really ratchet high the tension. As it turns out, th- there's a big Finnish audio called Damascus, which has Tim Triola voicing not just the Doctor but Jeremy Thorpe. Um, Tim Triola being the third Doctor, the the big Finnish voice actor of the third Doctor. That's an excellent John Pertwee. Um, but I'm a little biased now to Marshall. I hope that Big Finish will, if they ever want to use another person to voice their third doctor, might as well get use Marshall. He's excellent, and he'd love to do it. Um, uh, I'm sure that he would love to take part. But in any case, um, Trey Older's version of, of Thorpe... Um, it's like he catches the doctor on an off day. The doctor doesn't seem to be seem bothered to help. But in any case, he thwarts a small alien invasion. I haven't heard that audio, but I know one thing. And at the end of the story, Thorpe, who's kind of dictating to a recorder, a tape recorder, if you answer the story, he says in the end, he says, "I can I cannot trust the doctor's morality. Uh, he must be stopped." And so, Big Finish have yet to do something with that. Um, Big Finish have yet to do something with that. Maybe they will. Uh, I hope not, because I decided to do something with it here in this story. I, I suppose Big Finish could do... Uh, they can do whatever they want. I, I don't I don't control them. But it would be neat if maybe they do a story where maybe some of the Prime Minister's allies or government officials try to attack the Doctor. But in any case, maybe it ties nicely with the invasion of the dinosaurs. But um, I think the BBC site, when talking... The B- BBC site, Doctor Who site, talk, when talking about this stuff, says that the events of like Green Death and invasion of dinosaurs uh, destabilized and toppled um, Thorpe's government, so which is a labor government, but um, I thought I just thought to myself, well wouldn't it be neat that this it's neat that um, when I was when I'm thinking about what Jeremy Thorpe, how he would react, how he's reacting to the third doctor in this story, tallies very identically I was uh, exactly with the setup of Thorpe's opposed morality of the third doctor in the audio Damascus. There's also a kind of a companion eighth doctor audio called um short trips called uh, the world between the trees, I think. Um or something like that where I think Jeremy Thorpe again appears, I don't know, but it's the dark eyes costumed version of the eighth doctor. 
um, before he got the leather jacket. Well, his first leather jacket in any era. So anyway, but in any case, I just wanted to ratchet the tension now that the master is a bad guy and that Jeremy Thorpe is working with him. So, oh dear, he has authorization. Um, but I wanted to add a sense of, I want to give Mike Yates a character moment, or at least an emotive moment, where he says to the Prime Minister, Prime Minister, don't do this. And again, again, I'm going to give a shout out to Johnny Robinson for his excellent vocal um, voice work, um, his performance as uh, as this, as this um, humbled and very, very kind of raw and sincere version of, and repentant version of Mike Yates. He says, Prime Minister, don't do this. Whatever good you might think you're doing, I, you'll come to regret it, I promise you. And he's speaking from experience, from uh, say that word again, raw, broken experience of falling from grace and betraying his friends, his unit friends, and and losing his place in, in amongst them. And he was trying to do it for good reasons, but he knows that it, it, he's failed, it has come to naught, and he can see another person, because I could see Mike Gates, I don't know about it, whatever political affiliation he would have, but he would be, he's loyal to the Prime Minister, loyal to the government, and trying to support it. Well, he sees his, the leader of the government allied with a, a bona fide, bona fide, I suppose you want to say, but a, a true villain. And so Yates, he's saying, look, I know where you're coming from. I was, I, look, sir, I, I was in your position a short time ago. I did the wrong thing. I made the wrong choice. You're making the wrong choice. Please don't do it. But of course, Thorpe says, spare me your broken sentiment states. Unlike you, my vision is clear. I know which side I'm on. The breeder says, then you are a traitor, Thorpe, to your country and to humanity. And then Thorpe explains himself. Traitor Lethbridge Stewart? No, I see myself more as a savior of my country and the human race. I shall rescue us from the unpredictable morality of the doctor, the one who dares esteem himself as our superior. Um... And of course, the doctor says that you're playing right into... Thorpe, don't be a fool! <laughs> I really want to make this sound like John Pertree. You're playing right in the master's hands, but the master says, Oh, doctor, you were never very good with politics. It's a game, like any other, even ours. There are winners and there are losers. Today, the price of defeat will cost you your life, but not before you witness my ultimate victory. Behold! And of course, the master activates the machine. You hear the com combination sound of the the double heartbeat, the double beat, uh, Dalek machinery, and the and the, the TARDIS dematerialization sound. Again, wonderful props to... Gareth Severn for his excellent sound design. Um, and making it sound like the TARDIS has now become like a, like an electrical engine or something. An electric storm. In my mind, I picture this plasma wave of, this wave of kind of liquid fire and energy, electricity, you know, billowing and, and churning about the TARDIS. And uh, Liz, Sarah, she says it's burning. And of course, Liz identifies it as a type of ionized plasma field. I should say one thing, I haven't really mentioned Sergeant Benton or Richard Grohl's performance in the story, which is an excellent, excellent performance. A lot of people have singled him out as having been an excellent uh, impression, of, doing an excellent impression of um, John Levine's Sergeant Benton. Benton doesn't do too much like singular mo important moments in this story, but he's a Sergeant Benton through and through. He's there, present in every scene, watching, intent, ready to help. He makes reference to the Doctor's gizmo, the Humobile being invisible and such, so it's and the, what does the doctor say? It's uh, the ship is invisible. I'm not. It's 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 uh, it's invisible. But it's not deaf though. But um, so um, so Benton is there doing doing everything. And of course, again, Lee Rawlings as Sam Jackson, wonderful performance. Very you know calm, but you know very um, very uh, intimidating. And of course, what you discover, and again, this ties with the uh, Doctor Who lore, is that um, the master. Goads the you know taunts the doctor. What you know the doctor asks him, what are you doing to my, my ship? And the master says, well you tell me. 
And then it says using as a battery, focusing your power on the orbital force field, changing its energy. You're creating a time storm around the planet. So time storms, things that were first mentioned. I think with Fenric and Ace, the whole idea of time storms in the seventh Doctor's Arrow, so that they're pretty important. Um, and of course, this this time storm as it's it, as it's breaking down the force field, converting the force field into, into a time storm. The Dalek fleet's about to arrive. It's passing through the, uh, at least the barrier's thinning. It will be able to arrive in moments. And so, and of course, there's the final revelation. That yes, the Dal the Master's allied still with the Daleks. And the Master says, "This is uh, where." Your journey ends. Goodbye, Doctor. And I should make one point that, again, I referenced the idea of a game, politics being a game. And so I wanted to uh, reference that game concept, you know, uh, um, theme, because this story is called The Final Game. And, of course, we set up the cliffhanger, which is that the Doctor... Um, uh, this is one thing that was, again, removed from the um, by the narration. This is what the narration says. When, he, when the Doctor says, Take cover, everyone. The narrator says, with the speed and precision of an acrobatic magi magician, the doctor flung his Inverness cloak over the master's head. Then he leapt over the machine interface and flung himself towards the energy storm surrounding the TARDIS. As far as I know, no, yes we do. Uh, I was about to say, we never saw the doctor with his purple jacket and then an Inverness cape, but we do at the end of the green desk. So I like to think it's the same Inverness cape. It's kind of got the red and bluish, it's got a gray and has the red and blue or green-blue um, check pattern. So it's that. Um, costume. It's that cape. And something being flung over the Master's head is like when the Master flings his cloak over Benton's head in um, in the Daemon, so it's a little reversal there. And then, of course, the, ma the, the Doctor races into the TARDIS. Ah, uh, he's getting into the TARDIS, sir, says Benton. Doctor, you'll be killed! You know, it says, Doctor, what are you doing? Says the Brigadier, and says, and then, you'll be killed, and then the, the Master says, Doctor, stop! No! And then the, the, the notation in my script says we hear a colossal explosion, but I'm going to give wonderful... So I was expecting to hear a, a huge explosion. Boom! But I, re but I much prefer what uh, Gareth did in his sound design. He had the much wiser idea, which is, well, this is a very powerful time ship, and there's an explosion. He said, what kind of explosion would it be? And he said, well, wouldn't it... I think it would, he said it would be more like an implosion, so it's a little softer, and so it catches you off guard. And then you hear this, this implosion type of thing, this inrush of sound. And this, it, there's a, there is a quote-unquote explosion, it's more of an implosion, this more subtle, understated, subdued um, event. And then there's a period of several seconds of quiet. And then it catches you off guard, because you're like, what happened? What happened? And then you realize, oh... It's more like the... It's, 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 it's a sense of... of... of, uh, of the unknown as the episode ends. So where, what happens next? Well, uh, the cover has been uh, revealed for the final game part four, and I can say that um, you see on the cover an Ogron walking through a wasteland, firing his weapon. You also see the Emperor Dalek, and you see the Doctor, and uh, what looks like the Dalek, uh, a Dalek city, the corners of a Dalek city. It certainly is. So where will with those little ideas, where will it, uh, where will the story take us in part four? Well, I can say this: it will take us somewhere very familiar, and very scary. Well, um, I will finish then. Um, it's now twelve twenty-two a.m. I've been speaking now for almost an hour and twenty minutes. As of right now, it is an hour and nineteen minutes that I've been speaking. So I will finish here. And 
I speak collectively with this and what I did recorded earlier today, over two and a half hours. It's very good. I, lo- I love recording and talking about these stories. Um, so, uh, this is, these are my thoughts. These are my notes on the uh, the final game part three, final game for the final game confidential part three. And I look forward to the eventual release, which we hope to be well. This uh, this it was scheduled for late November, early December, because Gareth had to he moved across. He moved home. He moved from one end of the island of Cyprus to the other. So hopefully, he projected maybe the end of November, or early December. I think, as far as I know, he's working on part four, and also his story, Rebirth Part Two, the Tenth Doctor Donna story, um, featuring several wonderful actors, including Jerry Kokich, who's narrated some of our other audios. So I look forward to hearing both of those episodes. And for, until then, uh, I will say Happy Thanksgiving for our American listeners, and uh, have a wonderful. Uh, Wonderful weekend. Goodbye.